to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Right. Stay Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum. Konnichiwa. Shalom. What's going on? What's happening? Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo Wendell Wallace. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. Bonjour, bonsoir. Monsieur Mademoiselle. Who got that album all in one breath? What is happening? What is going on? Man, I am so excited. I, I got to admit, I am just beyond excited that 2020 is going to be almost over. That 2020 basically is uh, is going to be over in about 13 hours as I'm recording this. I'm just, man, I'm just dancing on the ceiling, man. I'm dancing in the street. I'm dancing the jig. I'm dancing every way that you can. I'm up there doing the James Brown. I'm getting down and doing the James Brown. I'm doing the kid and play. I'm doing everything, every dance move that's available. The Charleston, every, I don't care, man. I am just so happy if the Lord could just grant me another 13 hours, 14 hours to breathe a breath on this earth. January 1st, 2021. Let's see, man. Let's see what's happening. And look, I understand that, hey, man, January 1st, New Year, 2021, happening in another 13, 14 hours. God willing, if I'm able to wake up and see that day, I understand that the world is going to be the same. I understand that the pandemic isn't going away. I understand that there's still people locked up that committed a, that uh, are accused of a crime that they didn't commit. I understand that there's still people around the globe, around the world, who are suffering right now. I understand that there's people right now in on uh, death row that are in there for a crime that they didn't commit, that they've been in there for decades. I understand that there's still no peace in the Middle East. I, I understand that there's still racism and hatred and bigotry and ignorance and selfishness throughout the world. I understand all those th those things. But man, this year 2020 was one for the record books, was one for the record books. I always tell my friends, people who I've met and everything who have small children, I'm like, man, when they get to be our age, it's going to be a situation where they're going to be telling them kids, their, their kids are going to be coming home from school. And they're going to be going up to you guys and be talking about, man, you know, today is history class. We learned about what happened 2020. Was that for real? Was that really something that went down and you could be... Your children are going to be able to sit there and be like, "Woo, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I tell you, I was five, six, seven, eight years old when that thing went down, when that year happened, when that plague hit. Woo, man, let me tell you about what happened with that shit. So um, it's, um, it's not over. But if I could just use a historical reference, I think the attitude, not with just me, but with a lot of people, a lot of people in this country, is when Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president of the United States states and replaced um herbert hoover and you know you still had these uh, the, the stock market crash you still had financial ruin you still had people in poverty you still had homelessness you still had starvation you had all of these things that was mainly caused by the incompetence of then president hoover but what delano roosevelt offered he offered hope he offered something to where you know what the worst is behind us and now Step by step, we're going to move towards prosperity. We're going to move toward a better place. We're going to be moving to a better society. We're going to be moving to 
a society where we're going to be coming out of this. And we understand just because President Roosevelt is going to be in the office that all of a sudden everything is going to be great. That the stock market crash and the effect of what happens are going to be distant memory and, and, and we'll be going back to normal before everything happened. We'll be going back to the roaring 20s. We, we understand that's not going to happen. We understand that there's still going to be dark days and strong and then and uh, long days and hard days ahead of us. I know that these roads that we're going to have to be traveling to go to the city of um, go to the city of prosperity are going to be met with potholes and traffic jams and obstacles that is going to inhibit the process of us getting there. But damn, at least we're on the right path, man. Damn, at least we're going the right way. And for me. That's what January 1st brings. That's what's going to be my mindset. That's what's going to be my attitude, once again, God willing, if I'm allowed to uh, wake up and see the next day in about 13, 14 hours. That's, that's my plan. That's my goal. Yes, things are still going to be difficult. Yes, things in my personal life, as far as financially are concerned, aren't going to go away. My bills aren't going to go away. My debt isn't going to go away. I'm on, the situation with the Clark County School District and how we... Uh, teach and the teachers in the classroom and the teachers not in the classrooms and the children and the type of learning situation that we're going through right now and how that affects my financials and, and everything that falls with that. And I understand that January 1st, I understand that January 4th when I go back to work for the Clark County School District that things aren't going to go back to where they were uh, in February or in January of 2020 when I was financially just, man, just, whew, that was pretty good. So I understand all that. But at least I have some hope, man. At least now, especially January 21st, at least a mulchrum of hope that uh, we can start turning things around and getting to a place where we want to go here in the divided, ignorant, selfish, racist states of America. And I hope in all of the uh, hope the places that are listening to this podcast that... Um, Whatever world you're living in, whatever your situation is, man, I hope that uh, 2021 brings prosperity. And if 2020 was good to you, then I hope that 2021 should really be a boom for you. So, yeah, man, that's what I'm talking about. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So on the program today, I am just going to be doing a 2020 year in review. Now, once... 2021 starts. I'm going to hit heavy into the uh, NBA. I really haven't touched the NBA yet. Uh, the season started. There's been some good games. There's been some surprises. There's been some disappointments. There's been some things that I really want to talk about. But because of the NFL season winding down and everything that's been going on with that, and you know, I've really only had the um, I've only had the uh, mindset to talk about the NFL because right now that's what's playing the hits. So. I'm still going to be talking about the NFL, of course. I'm going to be touching on the college football semifinals, Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Notre Dame, and then the championship game between Alabama and Clemson. Oops, cats, cats out of the bag. So I'll be getting into that. But, you know, mainly while also speaking about, of course, the love of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas, who aren't playing until 2021. Along with that, I'll be really hitting heavy the NBA because if you don't know, let me tell you, the NBA in terms of if I was in the ultimate utopian type of a relationship, the NBA would be my Halle Berry. The NBA would be my Selma Hayek. The NBA would be my wifey. The NBA would be my ride and die. The NBA would be my everything. It is everything, and everything would be the NBA. So it's not like I'm neglecting 
talking about the NBA. It's just the season just started. Been watching games, but really hasn't haven't gotten into it as much as I should or could. But um, again, once 2021 hits, the next podcast, while speaking about what happened over the weekend in the NFL and breaking down who's going to be playing who in the playoff and who missed and who didn't miss and who's the favorite and who's not the favorite and who's the surprise and who's not the surprise, going through all that, I'll also be speaking about what's going down in the NBA. But uh, that's that's for another podcast. For this podcast, again, year in review, my way. I'm going to do it my way. 2020, man, I tell you, the most unique year in sports in my lifetime. I'm 51 years old. What about you? Can you think of anything else in terms of going through a a year, any part where you were just like, yeah, 2020 was, was fucked, but damn. I remember when 1995 or 2001 or whatever. I mean, but still at least... In this country, 2020, as far as unique, uniqueness concerning the sports are concerned and how they have to flip and switch and dip and dive and twist and turn and all of these things, it'll be one from the history books. It'll be, I, I think, along with wars of importance, worldwide plagues from centuries ago, leading to political upheaval in some countries, I think 2020, as I mentioned before, Put it down in the history books, not just here in the divided, racist, ignorant states of America. I'm also speaking about in Canada. I'm also speaking about in India. I'm also speaking about in Australia. I'm also speaking about in Russia. I'm also speaking about in France. I'm also speaking about in Brazil. I'm also speaking about all over the globe. That 2020, 2020, this is not going to be unique to one region of the country, one portion of the globe. It's, It's a global pandemic which caused major upheavals and major changes uh, to the world and this country. So for me, living in this country, what did COVID mean to the divided, racist, selfish, ignorant states of America? Really what it did, and I guess with all of the death and everything negative that came with it, people losing their jobs, people losing their homes, people losing lives and loved ones and such, the one silver lining, one silver lining, well, I say two. The two silver linings is there was a bunch of folks on death row who caught the uh, disease and died. So it was kind of like that was kind of taking care of business in that way. We didn't have to worry about the reappeals process and these assholes who actually killed somebody actually got their due justice. And it seemed to be a lot painful than just putting, sticking a needle in their arm and having their diaphragm stopped so they can die that way. The fact that these guys had to suffer, quite sure that in San Quentin that the medical care isn't the best. So a lot of these guys who raped and murdered children and murdered others who were sitting there on death row for decades because California's too fucked up to kill anybody who deserves it. The fact that they died a slow and painful death because of COVID, I thank COVID very much for that. Don't like the other instances of where you kill people, but taking care of those people. I appreciate you for that. So that's one small silver lining. And the other silver silver lining for this country in terms of what COVID meant was it saved our country from a democracy that was going to be in complete destruction. And it was going to be complete anarchy. The racist, selfish, ignorant, divided states of America, while still it is right now, if this plague didn't happen. If this pandemic didn't happen, the racist, 
piece of garbage, incompetent, narcissistic con man fool who's still in the White House right now. If this pandemic doesn't happen, he gets reelected. I don't give a damn about Joe Biden. I don't give a damn about Kamala Harris. I don't give a damn about Pete Buttigieg. I don't give a damn about any of those on the Democratic side who are vying for the um, uh, presidential nominee of the party. If COVID didn't happen, that fucking piece of shit, that fucking racist, low-life antichrist that's in the White House right now gets reelected for another four years, and God help us all. If that was going to be if that was going to be the case, again, our democracy would never be the same. The fabric of this country would never be the same. The damage that that fucking asshole would have it just would have put down on our country, at least in my lifetime, if I'm going to live another 25, 30 years, would have been irreconcilable. Your children, your children's children, would have been paying for the three to four years of absolute destruction. That that fucking asshole would have been doing to this country if he would have been reelected. And the waves and the, the ripples, the effect of the damage that that fucking jackass would have done to this country for his own personal gain would have uh, been felt around the world. So while our country would have gone down the drain with four more years of that fucking idiot, just imagine how... The, the how that would have affected the other countries, our allies, and other such things. So, in a way, in a way, I don't know if this was a, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this was a lifeline from the Lord and our Savior, but in a way, the Almighty Being. But in a way, COVID basically saved saved the planet in a small, small way. And I uh, look, I, I understand, man, you reach an ancient window. Look, but I'm just trying to say. And this is no disrespect for those who lost their loved ones because of COVID. I understand that. I'm not trying to say that. But man, what I am trying to say is that, you know, with all the destruction, with all the heartache, with all the pain, with everything, the turmoil and everything that uh, was caused by this pandemic, when we turn the corner and we're past the darkest clouds, in the rain, in the inclement weather that was caused by this virus upon our lives. You got to admit, because of the pandemic, because of people not being able to travel and do all those type of things, in a small, small way, it was very advantageous for our climate. It kind of helped our, helped our climate heal a little bit. It kind of slowed down the destruction of our climate. And now because of the things that we've learned that we can do because of COVID and because we had to um, be flexible and because we had to change and because we had to adjust, we found out that there's some things that we can do that can that's better than what we were doing before. And the only way we found that out was because of COVID. So now maybe that'll give your children's children's children a chance to do something with this planet. In a way, COVID helped save the planet. That's a, that's a silver lining right there. If you want to try to look at something glass half full. So in certain ways, I don't know if this was, I don't mean, I don't, if, if you believe in something, if you believe in a higher power, the Lord works in mysterious ways. You know, in some ways, it kind of helped future generations 
Because at least the way that we were going right now, I don't, you know, for me, no big deal. I ain't living enough. I ain't living long enough to see the damage that we were doing to this planet as a whole. I ain't living long enough. So I don't care about carbon monoxide and I don't care about the ozone layer and I don't care about any, any of that stuff. I don't care about plastic, paper, and trash and all that kind of stuff for the most part. For the most part. I'm going to try to, I try to be responsible. I try to be mature about those things. But, you know, for the most part, when people are talking about, you know, the weather and the, and the, and the polar bears and the ice caps and all these type of things, my attitude, along with the high majority of those in my age group, in my generation, our attitude is like, well, who gives a damn? I'm not giving up my comforts for uh, trying to save the planet because by the time the planet goes down the tubes, I'll be up in heaven. I'll be up in hell. I won't be here. I know one thing, and I'm quite sure my children will not be around. So we'll just kick that can down the road, and uh, when it hits, you know, high crisis, let them deal with it. So... The Lord was probably saying with COVID, no, nah, that's okay. We're going to slow you. If you guys can't do this for yourselves in terms of saving the universe and saving the planet that I created, if you guys can't do it yourself, I'm going to have to do it for you. And this is how I'm going to do it, by sending this down. So I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's again, it's been something. In, in each pandemic or each type of uh, situation, where there's wars or where there's plagues or something like that, it leads it leads to um, a new day. It leads to a new time. I'm not talking about the new day from the WWE, but the a new day, the new times, and everything moving forward. So, man, we will see what happens. So Wendell's World of Sports. Yes, sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So what did the pandemic reveal in this country, in this country that I live in, that I've been living in for the last 52 years, born and raised and all of those type of things. What does it mean? What did it reveal? Well, it just showed how selfish, divided, and intolerant we are as a country and as a society, mainly going to be focusing on what happens here in this country. The percentage of the population here in the divided, racist, ignorant, selfish states of America Blatantly disregarding the basic requests from experts in infectious diseases was, was appalling. The, the situation where folks now all of a sudden are, are experts in this type of stuff. I don't need to wear a mask. This is a hoax. This is a joke. This is being overblown. People are being lied to us depending upon which side you were on in terms of political beliefs and, affili and um, affiliations. Oh, no, it was a hoax. It was a joke. They're trying to uh, take our liberties. They're trying to take our freedoms. I'm not going to let this happen. The ignorance of those who refuse to do just the basic bare bones, wear a mask, claiming that their freedoms and liberties were being taken away or threatened. It was, it was bewildering, but yet it was kind of, kind of uh, not uh, surprising, if you really think about it. Because you know, the percentage of people who were just willing to listen to a selfish, corrupt, incompetent, amoral human piece of garbage that was in the White House for the last four years, people who were stupid enough to vote for that piece of shit, they just whatever whatever he told them to do, you know, go ahead, you know, it's a joke, it's a hoax, no big deal, we'll be good by um, Easter, schools will be back in session, this, that, and the other. They believed that stupid motherfucker because their way of life was being disrupted. Just just ridiculous. Just absolutely ridiculous. So 
again, it showed how embarrassing we were as a society when we just couldn't do just the bare bone basics. Small, a, a, a decent number. I'm not going to even say it was the majority of folks who had that type of situation. I'm not going to even say it was the majority of folks who felt that way. But it was enough. And also, it, it got me thinking, and people in my community thinking, it's like, damn, y'all. I mean, as, as black folks in this country, it's like we go through bullshit every single day just because of the color of our skin. There's certain things we've got to do as black folks in this country that are just straight out bullshit. We got to put up with bullshit every single day. And it's such a consistent thing that we don't even think about it. Really. I mean, we don't even get upset about it anymore. We don't even, you know, it's like, man, whatever. I mean, as long as, you know, as long as you don't kill us, as long as you don't do some bullshit or, you know, put my family at risk or put my property at risk or anything like that, you know, whatever, man. I'm, we're, we're just willing to uh, go with it because that's just the way it is. But, you know, to see, to see some white folks out there with the way of how indignant and how they, their attitudes were when to save other people, to save their family members, to save people they don't know, to save the elderly, to save all these folks in terms of just wearing a mask. Wear a fucking mask. We're not asking you to wear a mask 24 hours a day. We're not asking you to wear a mask seven days a week. We're not asking you to wear a mask in your home. We're not asking you to wear a mask when you walk out on the street and you want to go for a walk. We're not asking you to do all those type of things. We're only asking you to wear a mask six feet apart, social distancing. We're only asking you to sacrifice for a little bit of time. Just for a little bit. Six months or so. Just a little bit. Wear a fucking mask. When you go into a grocery store, wear a fucking mask. When you go to a public place and you're going to be surrounded by people, wear a fucking mask. Is it that fucking hard? Oh no, it's taking away my liberties. And that's where all this other bullshit, that's where you let fucking ignorant politicians and corrupt politicians come in and sit there and talk about, yeah, you know what? Fuck Dr. Fauci. Yeah, fuck all those people who are telling you how to do these things and what you should be doing. Yeah, they're taking away your rights. They're taking away your freedoms. I mean, this is, should be herd immunity. I mean, hell, you know what? If the old people have to die because of COVID, well, then so be it. But man, we can't shut down our way of life. We can't change our way of life. We can't adjust our way of life. We can't sacrifice for a little bit. We can't do those type of things. So if it means that the elderly have to go, well, then shit, fuck it. They have to go. If it means those with the... Uh, uh, immune systems that might not be able to adapt or adjust to this virus, fuck them, let them die. I can't afford to fucking go ahead and keep living like the way I'm doing. I have to go outside, I have to go to the beach, I have to go on vacation, I have to do, I have to take a cruise, I have to do all these things. I can't afford to be sitting at home doing nothing. So if it means that the, uh, you know, the 60, 70, 80 year old has to go, well then hell, they live, they've lived 70, 80 years. If grandma and granddad have to go, hell, they've lived long enough. Long enough. I mean, that was the uh, that was the bullshit that they were going through. And black folks were not immune to this. It's not like all black folks were like, yeah, I'm going to be, uh, you know, following step by step. Of course, there were uh, black folks out there who were just as ignorant in their thoughts and feelings and their selfishness toward those things. But, you know, the good number of black folks were just sitting around watching these white folks lose their mind and saying, wow, really? 
you guys are up there doing this shit when they're asking you to wear a mask in a public place. Man, just think, just thinking you had to deal with, just thinking you had to be us for, I don't know, a lifetime, a couple of generations. Interesting. Very interesting. And that's not all white folks. Don't go there. I'm just talking about those who are losing their mind. I'm talking about this is bullshit and we're going to take these fucking jackasses in Michigan running up to the state capitol. These fucking lowlifes in California going up to the state capitol of Sacramento with guns armed to the T talking about, you know, give us back our freedoms, give us back our liberties. You see, the NRA sees this type of uh, dumbass and they just, they just giggle and they just cackle. Because it's like, that's the deal. It's the same shit in terms of why we can't get any type of uh, proper gun control. Why we can't uh, go ahead and uh, put that in there. Because the argument has always been, well, don't you see? Don't you understand? You know, if you start putting in these laws, like, you know, you have to have a background check and all these type of things. That's the start of a road that's going to lead to those guys, that the government coming in and taking your guns. This is the first step in the government's plan to abolish the Second Amendment. So we can't even allow just the bare-bone basics, or at least building a level or two off the bare-bone basics for someone who's mentally unstable to get a gun and go into a schoolyard and start shooting up people. We can't even do the bare-bone basics of trying to enhance the opportunity for someone not getting themselves a AR-15 and other assault rifles and going into a place of of a business or going into a, a community place and start shooting up people. You know, we can't even do the bare bones. Even for, even, we'll even go ahead and say, you know what, for black folks who want to run ahead, who want to go ahead, who are dealing in illegal activities, who are corrupting and destroying the neighborhood because of drug activities and gang-related situations, we won't even do anything in that sense for them to uh, make it harder for someone to, get themselves an AR-15 or a, a, some type of crazy-ass weapon to uh, go into the black neighborhoods and cause crime and violence and destruction and despair. No, because don't you see, if we start doing that, that means someone's going to come down to what? Someone's going to come down to Appalachia. Someone's going to come down to Liberty City. Someone's going to come up to the upper side of Maine. Someone's going to go down to Texas or Alabama or Louisiana. Someone's going to go up to Portland, Oregon and demand and take your guns. We can't do that. So that's the same thing with these fucking idiots for COVID. And when I'm saying idiots, I'm not I'm not narrowing it to one race or one gender or one age group or one political affiliation or one any of those things. It was a strong, decent mix of everybody, of every race, of every gender, of every political background, of every religious background. More whites than most. But I'm just saying, though, it wasn't just one, it wasn't a monolith of one group of people who were sitting up there running around talking about, don't you see? Don't you see? This is the government's way of starting to take away our freedoms and our religions. And even those fucking idiots who said that, speaking about the government taking away their, their freedoms and religions by having us wear masks and social distance and not being able to be around uh, people or being around groups of five or six or 10 or 15 or more. Even those fucking idiots who were sitting up there believing in the Alex Jones conspiracy theories about how the government was going to take your freedoms and liberty, even they wouldn't attach that to the fucking idiot that was in the White House 
talking about, you know, if you drink bleach, you'll be able to uh, cure the disease. If you go ahead and you what, what, put, inject disinfectant, it'll help uh, with the disease. They didn't, they, they were too stupid to put two and two together in, in that situation. So, man, I tell you, again, this has been a crazy year, 2020. But it unveiled and revealed a lot of things, both good and bad. At least now, again, it gives folks who are on the right side. Everybody talks about if we were going to go do a cultural war, it would be based off of race or something like that. Black versus white, black versus white. I said, nah, in situations like this, it's not black versus white. It's right versus wrong. Good versus evil. And when we're speaking about right versus wrong, and when we're starting to uh, put people in one of those two camps, it doesn't go by race. It doesn't go by gender. It doesn't go by... If we're talking about good versus evil in terms of what we can do to move this country going forward, it ain't something where all white folks are going to be on one side, all black folks are going to be on another side, 80% of Hispanics on one side, 20% on the other. No, no, no. You can't do it that way. There's going to be a decent amount of people in terms of joining both sides, white, black, brown, Asian, Hispanic... Uh, Muslims, everybody, everybody, gay, straight, everybody. You can't look at somebody based on their skin color, based on their religion, based on their uh, political affiliation, based on where they grew up, based on who their friends are, based on their sexual orientation, based on who they love and they don't love, based on what God they believe in or if they believe in the God at all. You can't take those parameters, you can't take that information and say, oh, well, based on that, He's going to be on the good side. He's going to be on the bad side. He's going to be on the right side. He's going to be on the wrong side. He's going to be on the good side. He's going to be on the evil side. You can't do that. You can't do that. And that day needs to be coming, and it needs to be coming soon. In terms of what we can do to right these wrongs. And this situation, and these thoughts, and these opinions, were all, I guess, all expedited in terms of, what we need to do to kind of change things around. Those things were all caused by COVID. Those things were all caused by the year 2020. So yeah, man, 2020 was a bitch. 2020 was hard. 2020 was painful. And 2020 caused a lot of death and despair. But hopefully... 2021, 2220. Hopefully, this will lead to a better 2021, which will lead to an even better 2022, which will lead to a glorious 2030, which will lead to a euphoric and utopic 2050 and 60 when I'm no longer living in, um, you know, when I'm no longer existing in this form, in this life. So let's go glass half full, man. Yeah, 2020 was a bitch, but outside of the despair comes hope, comes some real hope. Let's hope that 2021 starts from a standpoint of unity, harmony, togetherness, understanding, learning, opportunity, building the foundation for a better tomorrow for your kids and 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 and the other generations. Let's hope that starts in less than 13 hours. Even you and I can't.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Wow, that was interesting. Mississippi State and Tulsa. <laughs> nice little brawl at the end of that game. I don't know what bowl game it was, but um, as I'm recording this, I have on my television out here in my town, town home in northwest Las Vegas. I had the uh, Tulsa Mississippi State game on. was paying no attention to it until I saw a bunch of guys throwing around and having a nice little brawl. By the way, man, if you're going to hit somebody and then run behind somebody, you're a bitch. Or at least that's a bitch move. Come on, man. Jeez. I mean, to play football and to play at the level of uh, to obtain the scholarship and play football at a school like Mississippi State or Tulsa. You know, you're speaking about Mississippi State, a, a, a school in the uh, Power Five Conference Coming out of high school, you had to be three, four-star recruit somewhere around there. Even Tulsa, two, three-star recruit, sometimes four-star recruit to go to schools like that. There's a sense of toughness to you that uh, is pretty rare among a lot of people. I mean, to play the game of football and to play it at that level, I mean, there's some skill, there's some toughness, there's some inner toughness that you must have to play this game. There's a... There's a... I don't know what the opposite of cowardless is, but there's a sense of, uh, you know, you have to be strong to go ahead. Strong mentally, physically to play, play the game of football and play it at that level. So for someone to who's on the team, both for Tulsa and Mississippi State, to act like such a bitch in terms of you're going to hit somebody and then start running away. Or you're going to hit somebody and then run around to, to where some of your other fellows are, some of your other teammates are, man, that's a bitch move, man. That's a straight out bitch move. Now, if you're gonna, if, number one, if you're gonna do that when there's like six other players around, then you're an idiot. If you're saying that's an excuse why I just kind of gave a little hit and run because there were like four or five other guys on the team, so why are you gonna do that to begin with? Dumb move, bitch move. But then, you know. If you're scared that that person was going to whip your ass if you did something like that, either A, don't do it, just, you know, mouth a bunch of shit and wait for reinforcements, or B, take the ass whooping like a man. If you're going to go ahead and you're going to step into that, that cage and poke that bear or hit that lion, then accept that ass whooping if you're going to do that. But don't hit the guy and run. Don't hit the guy and run. Don't, don't, don't do that. Cowardly. Extremely cowardly. Dorothy and the Tin Man would even agree, man. The, 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 even the wizard couldn't even save you from that job. You know, cowardly, very cowardly lion. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Take that shit and throw it over the rainbow. Uh, not skills either. The impact of COVID-19 on the world of sports. That's, or today's uh, situation where speaking about the year in review, 2020. This is not going to be mainly an everyday sports show in terms of what's going on, not talking about the NBA, not talking about the upcoming NFL games, not talking about the college football playoffs, not doing any of those things. I'm recording this on New Year's Eve. This will be published on New Year's Eve. So this is just a look back at what happened in the world and in the sporting world of 2020. So of course, with COVID, which really dominated everything, as you're speaking about this side of the globe and this part of the country and this part of the world, I guess the two main things that dominated the year of 2020 was the COVID pandemic and also the racial injustice and the second coming of the civil rights movement, the second coming of the reconstruction here of this country along race relations or along 
races getting together, working together, finding out about each other, their wants, their needs, their strengths, their weaknesses, their ignorance, their understandings, every, everything among that boat. But uh, for the sports world, COVID shut everything down, man, from the beginning of spring to early summer. And I, w- I was one of those where I got on a boat a little bit late about how dangerous COVID was. I just thought that it was Ebola. You know, you hear about all these other viruses and you're like, yeah, you know what? That's happening over in Africa. That's happening over in China. That's happening everywhere. You know, normally the swine flu, all this nonsense, normally that stuff doesn't really affect me. It really doesn't affect this country. It really doesn't affect the everyday life of what I'm doing. It doesn't affect the sports that I love, the college football, the college basketball, the college uh, lacrosse, the... NFL, the NBA, hockey, tennis, boxing, UFC, all this stuff. So I really didn't pay it that much attention. And as I mentioned before, I was, you know, doing my thing, you know, getting my uh, feet wet with the podcast and the recordings and such and going, doing my thing with the Clark County School District, going to schools, guest teaching, substitute teaching, doing my other things, making a little money on the side hustle. So I was... Doing well. I was doing fine. Really didn't think anything about it. And while I don't listen to the uh, any, I don't listen to anything the person in the White House for a couple of more weeks says because everything he says basically is a lie. Um, I just really didn't pay any attention. Even when he was talking about this and no big deal, one person from China has it uh, coming over here and all of this ignorance. I didn't pay any attention because a he's a fucking liar and he's a worthless piece of shit. But b I've kind of heard this before. Throughout my years living on Earth, and it's really never affected anything in terms of my day to day, in terms of my everyday. So I just kept going on and kept going on until it really didn't hit. Until the NBA shut down, they were talking about it, and this might be a situation where it could come up, and this, that, and the other. And even in the school district here out here in Clark County, they were talking about the situation where spring sports might be shut down, or there might be some, um, there might be some tinkering in terms of uh, how the spring season's going to go and everything. But again, this is Clark County, where every year they talk about we don't have any money, people are going to be laid off, and there's going to be some major changes, and and teachers are going to go on strike. And then August rolls around, and nothing happens, and everything is just hunky-dory. So I was kind of thinking the same thing. But when March 11th hit of 2020, and the NBA suspended its uh, season... After Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz tested positive for the coronavirus prior to the uh, tip-off for a scheduled game against the Oklahoma City Thunder, I was like, oh, shit. Then, when the strip down here on Las Vegas Boulevard, I mean, when that shut down, you're speaking about the Wynn and the Bellagio and the MGM and the Mandalay and, and Paris, and, I mean, these these. Uh, properties that are owned by billionaires when all of a sudden they started to shut down that's when I was like okay this is some this is some serious shit right here this is where I first was like okay this is serious and I really need to uh, take heed to what these folks are saying who are saying you need to do this you need to do that to mitigate the uh, spread of the virus because billionaires don't shut down businesses over hoaxes. Billionaires don't shut down businesses. I mean, these NBA owners who are billionaires, these guys, Steve Wynn and these guys who own property on the Strip, 
These guys are billionaires. They don't shut down their operations and are willing to lose millions upon millions of dollars over bullshit, over junk science, over nonsense. Steve Sisolak, our governor out here in Nevada, he ain't shutting down the, the strip. He ain't making these guys lose millions and millions of dollars based on bullshit, nonsense information. If there was any way humanly possible that these guys could continue to do what they were doing down on the strip, believe me, they would have continued to do it. So when that shit shut down, all right, now we're, now, forget Dr. Fauci, forget everybody else. Now I know that this virus is serious because you had old, rich, white men willing to lose millions upon millions upon millions of dollars because of this. Now it's time to take this stuff very seriously. And it started on March 11th. 2020 with the suspension of the Oklahoma City Utah Jazz game and people are talking about you know Rudy Gobert and Rudy Gobert with that person and Donovan Donovan Mitchell got it from Rudy Gobert and Rudy Gobert at one time I guess at a press conference after a game a couple of days before he was announced announced that he tested positive was you know playfully touching all of the microphones the reporters microphones and all this type of stuff because he didn't take it seriously, and then it finds out a couple of days later he tested positive, and he started having symptoms. I mean, later on in the sports world, people would get the virus, and it would be, I don't have any symptoms, but because they said that I tested positive, I got to go through a couple of more tests to see if it's a positive, negative, and if it really is positive, it's no big deal because I'm not having any symptoms, and I'm asymptomatic, but I can't be around any, anybody. So as the world started moving and the, you know, calendar started moving and such. Um, I think the virus was, wasn't taken as seriously because, you know, you, you heard all these cases of people having the virus, but I mean, unlike AIDS, I mean, the, the last like known virus which freaked everybody out was AIDS, right? That was back in what the early nineties where if you, were diagnosed, if you tested HIV positive, it was basically a death sentence. If you remember and you go back to when Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive and because of that he was going to have to retire from the Lakers, you saw the pandemonium, you saw the, you saw the, uh, you know, just the absolute scare that fellows were, you know, were put into in terms of, oh shit, fucking Magic Johnson's got it, what the fuck? So you saw all these images of people who had AIDS in their last dying days, and you saw folks with legions, and you saw folks who were you know, withering away, and skin and bones, and, and all of those type of things. So the AIDS pandemic, or the AIDS situation, at its height, at its zenith, I mean, you saw the images which caused fear, and you saw these, you know, these, these folks. Magic having the virus, and then slowly but surely, hey, guess what? He's not dying. Hey, guess what? He's not withering away. Hey, guess not? He looks indescribably, you know, disgusting and horrific and all of those type of things. He's not dead. As year one went to year five, went to year 10, went to year 15, and now we take a look at it. Many people, I bet you there's a generation who kind of forgot, kind of don't even realize that Magic Johnson has AIDS. So, to get to that point from where Magic Johnson first started and when it was at its height in terms of the, the scare of what the AIDS virus can do, the coronavirus didn't have that pen. The coronavirus didn't have that effect. I mean, we didn't have in sports someone catching the coronavirus and then we saw him die. There wasn't a, 
there wasn't a major athlete. There wasn't an Arthur Ashe, uh, Arthur uh, Ashe type of deal where, you know, this guy had AIDS and then he died. There wasn't anybody really prominent uh, to go ahead and say, wow, I got AIDS, now I'm in this hospital, and now two weeks later he's dead. That type of thing. So, you know, it, it, it's it's taken, I guess, some of the... I guess some of the angst and the worry of getting corona now is very low, especially now since they've come out with a pandemic. But, man, it all it all started for a lot of people getting serious in terms of what this means for 2020 moving forward when Rudy Gobert came down and you know, Donovan Mitchell and everybody talked about it with Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert is the, you know, the, 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 the guy. Well, how do we know that Rudy Gobert didn't get it from Donovan Mitchell? We don't know. We don't know that. But, you know, moving forward. So the NBA on March 11th shut down. Then on June 4th of that same year, it was announced that the season would restart. It would restart on July 31st for the 22 teams that were still in playoff contention at the time of the suspension. Um, I thought it was a situation where, you know what, let's have everybody go back. Because there was no guarantee that baseball was going to come back. There was no guarantee that they were going to have football. There was no guarantee that college football, you know, we, none of this stuff was, you know, going to be guaranteed moving forward. So I thought if the NBA was going to come back and they were going to do it in a bubble and there were discussions whether they were going to have it in Vegas, like the Western Conference was going to be situated at the MGM Grand down here in Vegas or another hotel casino somewhere on the Strip or uh, you know, half the you know, the Western Conference was going to be in Vegas. The Eastern Conference was going to be in Orlando. There were many things kind of thrown around, but they decided on the Walt Disney Complex down in Orlando. I thought that all 31 teams should have uh, should have participated. Number one, to uh, to end the uh, advantage that a team would have in terms of getting back and playing if the season was going to move forward after, I mean, for next season. I mean, you had teams like Charlotte and Chicago Bulls and the Golden State Warriors, so they hadn't played basketball since March. And depending upon when the season was going to start, if you were going to have this uh, start restart of the season and have it end no later than October 12th, well, then if you were going to start the season again on Jan- you know, start the new season in January, that means these teams that weren't good enough to make the playoffs, they wouldn't be able to play basketball together. They wouldn't be able to do anything for almost a year. We're speaking about eight, nine, ten months. While teams that had been participating in the bubble would have had a chance to play and continue to grow and continue to do whatever. Now, I know teams like the Lakers and the veteran teams, that might not be a big deal. But some of these teams, that's one of the reasons why the Washington Wizards said, yeah, we're in. That's one of the reasons why the Memphis Grizzlies said, yeah, we're in. That's one of the reasons why the um, Phoenix Suns said, yeah, we're in. That's one of the reasons why the New Orleans Hornets were like, yeah, we're in. I mean, they were going to go anyway, but, you know, they were like, this is this is a good situation to where there's a playing game situation. We can come back. We can continue to do more evaluating. We can continue to grow as a team, this type of thing. So I thought from a standpoint of evening out the playing field that all 31 teams should have come back. And it provided great inventory because during that time, there were no sports on. And for me, myself, I can only watch so many shows about serial killers and crime and justice and chop and guys' grocery games and the worst cooks in America and the first 48 and MSNBC. And I can only watch so many of those 
programs before I'm like, man, I want to see some sports, man. I want to get off and do something else. I want to see live sports. I'm not interested in turning on NBA TV and watching a game from 1996. I want to see some real live sports. So I thought if basketball was going to be the only game that was going to be coming back, why not Why not just shower the entire ESPN, ESPN2, and all these other uh, networks that carry the NBA, why not give them games that they can show every day? And because the NBA would be the only game in town, it would uplift uh, their league because they would be the only ones playing. And all, you know, with the exception of a UFC event, that would be the only sports that uh, people could watch. So people who might not be NBA fans or people who are normally not NBA fans or didn't watch the NBA unless it was LeBron or Steph Curry or didn't watch the NBA until the uh, playoffs started, this would be something that they could watch because when you're cooped up in your house and you're not doing anything, uh, you'll be surprised uh, the measures that you'll take to be entertained. And if you weren't an NBA fan or really weren't into the NBA while you were doing your normal routine because of this pandemic, it's better than staring at a wall. It's better than reading another book. It's better than listening to another song. It's better than doing anything else. So I thought because of that, the NBA would go ahead and give the public as much basketball as they could. But they were like, nah, we'll stick with um, we'll stick with the 22 teams that were in playoff contention. And I'm quite sure it was because also of the pandemic. It was also because of some players wanted to be involved in social activism and help their communities through times of police brutality and such. And I just think there were some who were just like, I don't want to risk it with the biscuit in terms of coming back and playing. So, all right, all right. So on July 31st, or no, July 1st, excuse me, the 2019-2020 NBA season officially resumed in a bubble setting at the ESPN Worldwide Wide World of Sports Complex in Lake Bay Lake, Florida, which at the time was one of the, it was, you know, uh, Bay Lake, Florida is just another community in Orlando, which at the time were seeing high rates of uh, positive COVID tests. But play concluded on October 11th. The Lakers won the NBA championship, beating Miami four games to one. No, four games to two, excuse me. LeBron was tremendous. AD was fantastic. Um, It was a tremendous success for the NBA. From the start of the 2019 season to the end, Not one recorded case of COVID-19. Anybody, anyone, players, coaches, staff, employees of the complex, nothing. It was a good success in the bubble, recouped an estimated $1.5 billion in revenue for the owners. Hey man, don't blame the owners. If you were an owner of a basketball team and you were losing millions and millions of dollars because of this, I mean, hell yeah, you would try to do everything humanly possible to recoup some of the money that you lost, so... Don't don't blame the owners for uh, doing this. I don't. So it was a, a good deal. And the fact that the relationship between the owners and the Players Association went so smoothly. The owners, commissioner, Players Association, Michelle, Michelle Roberts, Chris Paul on the player side, Adam Silver on the owner's side. They agreed to, you know, Black Lives Matter on the... On the hardwood, players wearing equality and Black Lives Matter on the jerseys. Uh, the NBA giving the AOK, not that the players were looking for the NBA owners to give them the AOK, but the uh, owners being comfortable enough and having a good enough relationship with the players that they could speak on the police brutality and what was going on during that time while in the bubble and entertaining those 
who were at home because of COVID. I thought it was a major success. And I also thought, along with the UFC, I'll give Dana White some credit also for this, I think it was also a strong foundation to build upon other teams to show, or other sports leagues to show, that you know what, we can go ahead and we can have a, uh, we can have a season. We can have, if not a full season, most of the season um, being pulled off because of this. The WNBA was another one who went into a bubble and did an absolutely fine job, even though I can't tell you one thing about who won the WNBA championship, nor do I really care. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Sorry, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Major League Baseball was next in terms of how are we going to do this, what we're going to do. Now, of course, baseball is a lot different than basketball. Yeah, I mean, other than the fact that one, you shoot the ball in the hoop, and one, you hit the home run with the ball and glove. All right, man, don't be a fucking smartass. What I'm saying is because of the NBA, 12 players on the team, Major League Baseball, you have 25. The NBA is an arena type of sport. The Major League Baseball, that's a stadium type of sport. So if you're speaking about a bubble, if you're speaking about anything that the Major League Baseball, uh, that Major League Baseball could organize or to implement, that the NBA could to help stop the spread of the virus or to have a season to where you wouldn't have to shut down or keep the players' health uh, at, the, uh, at the optimum, it was going to have to be a lot different. The season for Major League Baseball, they were speaking about, man, let's try to do this in a, in a you know, we'll have the National League in Arizona and they can play out because National League, uh, the um, spring training of, uh, venues, uh, mainly in Florida, mainly in Arizona. They could be used. The National League would be in Arizona. The American League would be in Florida. And they would be playing at the complexes to where some of the AAA teams and some of the spring training games were held. Really didn't matter because there weren't going to be any fans in the audience. So it really didn't matter the size of the stadium itself itself to where it would be holding people. But uh, this was just a way, again, to try to lessen the opportunity for players coming down with the Rona and having a season to where you could continue it. The season really for baseball hasn't been interrupted since uh, uh, since 9-11 back in 2001. So the only problem with that, of course, is the fact that you couldn't agree, the players and the owners couldn't agree exactly on what were the compensation, what were the terms for Major League Baseball returning once they were speaking about spring training and the start of the opening uh, game of the season late March that was going to be postponed. So we're going to see what we can do to possibly restart the season at another time this year, later on this year. Well, again, the owners and the players, unlike the NBA, who had much better relationship, much better trust with each other, the owners in baseball, Rob Manfred being the being the face of those guys and the uh, Players Association, Tony Clark being the face of that organization or of that association, they couldn't get together. They couldn't figure out a deal. The players were like, well, whatever deal that you implement, we want 100% of our salaries. And the owners were like, well, how the fuck are we going to do that when if we can't have any fans in the stands, do you realize how many billions of dollars that we're going to lose because of that, so somehow, some way, we have to kind of adjust here your salaries because this is a situation where 
It's not like any other year that we've been in as far as Major League Baseball is concerned. We can't give you 100% of your salary if we're only going to be playing 114 or 106 or 89 games or whatever. And the players were like, well, screw you. We're the one putting our lives and our health at risk by going out there and playing. And so we need to be compensated some way. I mean, Blake Snell said that uh, pretty strongly on a podcast that he was uh, being a guest for. Talking about, hey, you know, everyone's saying that we need to play, we need to play. Well, you know, you're not putting yourself out there to catch the Rona. That's what he called it, the Rona. So, it was uh, contentious. I thought Major League Baseball, it would have been a great, I did this, said this on my podcast. I thought Major League Baseball, it would have been awesome if those guys would have come back on July 4th. America's birth date to come back and America's former America's game. Speaking about uh, Major League Baseball to show the strength and to show the hope and show you know, that uh, the best is yet to come. But what we need to do is just continue to try to get through this uh, time period that we're going right now through uh, dark and doldrum times. But Major League Baseball finally got it together. So among all the major three sports in this country, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, the two mid-major sports in this country, MLS, NHL, This was the sport which had the greatest chance of the season being canceled because, again, their stubbornness in terms of negotiation. Started off in mid-May. The owners proposed a schedule of 82 games to begin in July with games being played without fans in attendance. Uh, The postseason would be expanded from 10 to 14 teams. Hey, hey, hey. With each league fielding three division winners and four wildcard teams, the Players on June 1st were like, "Mm, how about this? How about a 114-game season with a regular season running from June 30th to October 31st and a November postseason? (sighs) The owners came back a week later and they said, what about 76 games? To the uh, with the regular season ending September 27th and the postseason ending October 14th. The next day, then the uh, MLBPA responded with an 89 game plan with full prorated player salaries. <laughs> full prorated salaries. I thought that we. Then the next week on June 15th, the owner proposed a 60 game season while the uh, Players Association counted with a 70 game season on which June 19th was rejected by the owner. So basically, the players were willing to die on the hill of we want as much money as possible and we're not really ready, we're not really willing to negotiate with you guys in terms of, yeah, not only are we going to be playing baseball without anybody in the stands, we're also not going to be playing our regular 162 game schedule. So let me see here. You take that, you take that lost revenue, you take this lost revenue, you take those lost revenues. Damn, we're losing a lot of money. And then on top of that, you got to, uh, we got to pay you guys your full contract. We've got to pay Robinson Cano $27 million. We got to pay Albert Pujols $32 million. We got to pay, pay Bryce Harper $30-something million. We've got to pay Mookie Best an extraordinary amount of money. We've got to pay Mike Trout a big-time amount of money. To play only 89, 114 games? And then Mike Trout was like, look, man, you know what? I don't have to play. My wife is having a child in the fall. And if I go out here and I risk my health because of this Rona, not only am I putting myself in danger, I got a newborn on the way. So, I mean, you know, come on, man, cut me some slack. So they acquiesced and, you know, they negotiated in 60 games. That's what it was, so... 
Once the season started, typical Florida, the uh, Florida, the Miami Marlins, St. Louis Cardinals, they experienced COVID outbreaks, positive tests on the Cincinnati Reds, the New York Mets, the Oakland A's, San Francisco Giants. It resulted in a postponement of around 40 games. Many people thought that this wasn't even going to happen in terms of some teams were going to have to shut it down. The Miami Marlins basically made the playoffs in part because they didn't play the same amount of games. There were situations where how are we going to determine who did what and who did how and how are we going to determine who makes the playoffs if we're just dealing based on percentage if the, for instance, the Chicago Cubs play 58 games and the St. Louis Cardinals play 38 games because they missed some games because of COVID. So in 38 games, the St. Louis Cardinals might have the might have a higher percentage, winning percentage, than the Chicago Cubs, but the Cubs can argue, well, wait a minute, they only played 38 fucking games because of COVID, and then St. Louis can counter it by saying, well, it's not like we fucking went to the COVID shop and bought ourselves a bunch of COVID and gave it to us. So it was all of all of this. And no, by the way, 38, 60 games, you still have to pay us. So it was uh, it was interesting in baseball. But they got through. The Dodgers won the World Series over Tampa 4-2. Mainly in part because the uh, manager for uh, Tampa, Kevin Keeley, Kelly, forgot his name, decided that he wanted to do the analytics route. Very nice. Very nice. Blake Snell is rolling, and you take him out after the second time through the lineup. Nice. Nice. How does that work out for you? Good manager, though, but, you know, geez, should have zigged when he should have zagged, but anybody can play uh, armchair manager the next day. But um, that was Major League Baseball in a nutshell. Out of all the sports, that was the one where it was kind of like, I don't know if this one's going to be done. But America's pastime, formerly America's sport, America's game, whatever, it had to get done. At the end, do you consider it a success? I do. I do. Nope, no one died. Nobody, no player, manager, club attendant, anybody associated with the with these teams died. So that's that's a big bonus. Number two, long term, we don't know what the effects are of COVID from those who did did uh, test positive. But for the most part, there doesn't seem to be any long term ramifications of those who caught COVID. There isn't. There hasn't been any news of any of those players who caught the uh, virus still struggling, still not having the ability to uh, smell and taste and, and those type of things. So they had a World Series, good ratings, good for Clayton Kershaw, good for Dave Roberts. So in all in all, except for the, except for the um, I don't know, the embarrassment for the league to have Justin Turner, who was taken out of the game during the deciding game six because he tested positive. Not like he went in between innings, they put a thing up his nose and came back and said, oh shit, you're positive. But I guess the test came back um, from what he took a couple of days ago, said he was positive, and they were like, we got to get him the fuck out of here. He's around people, and he's not wearing a mask. So they took him out, and then after the Dodgers won the World Series, guess who's running onto the field and celebrating with his teammates like he's the uh, picture of health? None other than Justin Turner. Who's sitting up there, you know, yucking it up for the camera and taking that team picture with the uh, World Series uh, sitting by his side or or there with the team? It's Justin Turner. Wait a minute. Wasn't he taken out because of COVID? What the fuck is he doing sitting next to me without a mask and this guy is COVID positive? Mm. But again, by that time, as I mentioned before about the difference between 
COVID, by this time, the difference between COVID and when AIDS first came out, I mean, if this was a disease like AIDS, speaking of COVID, then there ain't no fucking way. Not only would Justin Turner not be anywhere near the building, near the stadium, if they found out that he had the virus, which had the type of uh, stereotype that AIDS had back in its zenith, back in its uh, apex of uh, fear and worry, that if Justin Turner with COVID came running out, his teammates would be running in the opposite direction as fast as uh, as fast as uh, Bullet Bob Hayes. In terms of, fuck no! Hell no! Get the fuck away from me! But by that time, I think COVID had been had been mitigated, had been uh, the, 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 the effects or the, the virus itself was kind of played down. So it wasn't a big deal. You were more than happy to sit next to a guy who had COVID. So because you, know, you see Justin Turner running around, does the guy look sick to you? That looks sick to me. So, I mean, screw it. So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And again, we've seen the nonsense speaking about 2020 in review. College sports, college basketball shut down. The tournament, first time in a long time. The NCAA tournament was a no-go. We'll see what happens moving forward. College football, they stopped, they started, they started, they stopped. We heard some stupid shit from coaches. Speaking about it, it's no big deal. We heard the stupidity of, of uh, Oklahoma State University coach. Oh, my goodness. I see his face, but I forget his name. I want to give myself five minutes to see what Mike, Mike Gundy, <laughs> Mike Gundy talking about we need these guys back in town and we need these guys back playing. This was at the height of everything being shut down and college sports, mainly college football, exposing itself in terms of what its true uh, reasons were for coming back, which was money, money, money. And when they crown a national champion, they'll say that the season was a success, despite the fact of how weird this season was. The Big Ten first doing the right thing and saying we're going to uh, cancel sports and then parents and coaches and players getting all upset and this, that, and the other and the Big Ten commissioner kowtowing and bowing down to those fools and now they're going to go ahead and play again and Ohio State getting the privilege of, oh, if you play five games, uh, you not, you're not eligible for the conference championship. Oh, you play five games? Oh, that's okay. We'll just go ahead and uh, just let you play anyway. The NCAA showing that it has no teeth, it has no backbone, it has no spine in terms of implementing some type of wide-ranging rules for each conference instead of letting each conference go rogue and do their own thing. It's all a game. It's all about money. And the ones who aren't being compensated, the, or those who are not, who are being taken advantage of the most, are the players. But they're out there playing. And again, nobody of any consequence. Trevor Lawrence got the virus. But again, you saw him, no big deal, on very mild symptoms. He came back in two weeks. He went fine. He was on the sideline. I guess the one time, the one week that he couldn't play or something like that. So, you know, again... The face of college football, he got the virus and he's okay. He's still living. He's still breathing. He's still strong. There's no type of after effects, negative after effects of the virus. So cool, this, that, and the other. So no one died of any consequence. You've got Alabama, Ohio State, Notre Dame, and Clemson in the final four. Bingo. So for college football, for them, it's it was a success. It was dirty. It was nasty. It was ridiculous. If the NFL wants to go ahead and 
try to twist and turn and do everything along with the NHL, along with Major League Baseball, along with the NBA, along with professional athletes who are grown men, responsible men who are getting paid millions of dollars and have the option to play or not play. If these leagues want to go ahead and do that and these guys know the risk that they're getting into and they collectively bargain or agree or negotiate that this is the way that's going to be, then that's on them. Then, of course, that's the deal. With college athletics, that doesn't happen. So it's all about old, rich, white guys getting paid millions upon billions of dollars. It's all about predominantly white universities getting their money so they can continue to go ahead and to, uh, you know, do their thing. It's about coaches getting paid. It's about athletic directors keeping their jobs. It's about all those things. It's, it's everything about the true health and safety of the quote-unquote student-athletes. It's a game. It's a sham. Welcome. Hello. How you doing? This is college athletics, mainly speaking about basketball and predominantly speaking about big-time football. California Wendell's World of Sports, the 2020 review, year in review, Wendell's Way. Bonsoir, bonjour, monsieur, mademoiselle. What's happening? Que pasa, mi amigos? Namaste, shalom, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa. Hope everybody is hanging in there, hanging in there, depending upon where you are, depending upon when you listen to this podcast. I am recording this on a Thursday afternoon. I will be publish, publishing this on a Thursday afternoon. If you're going to be out and about when the uh, new year, when 2021 rolls around, it's going to be a lot different than other years because of the pandemic, dropping the ball and all of that nonsense. I know last year I went Ubering on New Year's Eve. Man, I made a boatload of money. I made a boatload of money. And I didn't even have to go down to the strip. Everybody was going to parties or everybody was going to an establishment off the strip because for us who live in Vegas, I mean, we we have zero interest, no interest, beyond zero interest of doing anything in terms of hanging on, hanging down at the strip. Go see a show or something like that, fine. You want to maybe go to a, you know, a restaurant every blue moon, fine. But for the most part, what tourists do when they go down to the strip, that's something that we have for those locals, the high majority of people, we have absolutely zero interest in. So if we're going to hang out somewhere like that, we're going to go down to Old Las Vegas. We're going to go down to Old Town where more of the locals go. If um, we want to go gamble or something like that, I mean, hell, there's hotel casinos almost on every other block out here. So you don't need to go all the way down to the Strip if you live in Henderson, if you live in Green Valley, if you live in the southwest side, if you live where I live in Centennial Hills. They have a Station the casino all over this joint. You're about five minutes away from a uh, casino. Multiple casinos. So when I was uh, 
Ubering last um, last New Year's Eve, everybody that I picked up was going to one of these either local casinos or they were going to a friend's house or they were returning from a friend's house going home or they were going to a local establishment, restaurant or whatever to uh, bring in the New Year. So normally for the locals, we stay out there. The strip is basically blocked off for uh, folks who are in town and want to celebrate the New Year's and it's a clusterfuck. I, I did the strip thing in 91 when I lived in, um, where did I live? I lived in the, the Bay Area when I lived in Hayward, California. Me, Puerto Rican Chris Ortiz and uh, some of the Hispanic twins went down to uh, Vegas and we brought in 1991 or 92, one of those years. I don't know, man. When you get to be my age, the years kind of roll together. But I had an awesome time. I had a great time. But I mean, at that time, I was, what, in my early 20s? You think I'm feel like you think I feel like doing that shit now? Shit, you couldn't pay me what this country owes China to go down there and do that kind of stuff again. Well, mortgage situation, I'd probably do it, but still, you would have to pay me what we owe China for me to go down there, and don't expect for me to enjoy it. But uh, yeah, so this year that ain't going to be happening. <laughs> this year I'm not going out at all. This year I'm going to sit back and relax. I'm going to do the old man thing. I don't know what I'm going to do normally. I like to uh, bring in the new year by listening to Otis Redding. I like to bring in the new year to uh, thinking about some other stuff in my life to get it going. The last couple of years, I brought in the new year. Or after I brought in the new year, listening to Otis or listening to Sam Cooke or listening to Donnie Hathaway or listening to Aretha or listening to the Four Tops or listening to some music to get me going and bring me into the year on a good note. About 12, 15, 12, 30, the last couple of years, I go down to the Las Vegas Athletic Club and get on the uh, Stairmaster, and that's my way of saying, this year is going to be different, I'm actually going to get out, and I'm going to lose some weight, and I'm going to be serious, and all those type of things, and this is my starting point. As soon as the clock turns midnight, or as soon as the clock turns quarter past midnight, on the first day of the new year, I'm starting, baby, so I do that, and for the year, starts and stops, I'll go for two months, and then I'll take two weeks off, and then I'll go for three weeks, and I'll take four weeks off, and then I'll go for, you know, six months or six weeks, and then I'll take a week off. So I need to be a little bit more consistent, but fuck it, I say that every year. I just want to keep living. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty much my deal for uh, New Year's Eve. What's yours? As long as it's dealing with something safe and dealing with something that's going to make you feel good, bringing in with your loved ones, bringing in with someone that you lo- want to love, bringing in with family and friends, even though... We are going to be restricted in terms of how many people we could be with. I mean, for someone who doesn't have uh, a wife and children, I mean, I don't know. For me, kind of like would be ideal to bring it in with my wife and children. But I guess folks who have been married for a while and with multiple kids and all that kind of stuff, they're like, eh, you know, (laughs) overrated. (laughs) So, you know, to each his own. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The city of champions, the city of champions, it was... Los Angeles, California, on top of the smog, on top of the police brutality, on top of the uh, traffic jams, on top of all of that stuff, the earthquakes, the high price of living. But one thing that you can say about L.A., when it comes to baseball, when it comes to professional baseball and basketball, y'all are the champions, man. Congratulations, the Dodgers and the Lakers. Winning the championships within 16 days of each other. Very nice. The Dodgers won their first World Series championship since 1988 and their seventh overall. The Dodgers went 43-17 and during the COVID-19 shortened regular season. 
Of course, one of the biggest moves and the best move in the offseason was getting Mookie Betts, the best two-way player in the game. They faced a little adversity. If you remember, they were down 3-1 in the NLCS against Atlanta, came back to win 4-3. Cody Bellinger finally awoke, hit the game-winning home run in the uh, fourth, in the uh, seventh game. Uh, Julio Urias came in, uh, former starter, former phenom until he got Tommy John surgery. So for this situation, they moved him to the bullpen. And I guess for the Dodgers, two guys who I'm most um, happy for, I'm not saying I'm a big fan of Clayton Kershaw, I'm not, you know, Dave Roberts is who he is, but um, I, was, I was happy for uh, those guys because this was a it seemed like Dave Roberts is on the uh, hot seat almost every single year, and he has underperformed with this team in the uh, postseason. So the questions about whether he's the guy to get it done was warranted but uh, I'm glad that uh, he got it done, got himself a World Series, and at least for a couple of years, got himself a little security, speaking of his job. And Clayton Kershaw, elevating his already Hall of Fame career in terms of him finally getting that chip, finally getting that World Series championship, him a World Series champion. Been this generation's Greg Maddox, shall you say. A guy who was great in the postseason, but yet was not as great in the postseason as he was during the regular season, excuse me. The difference, of course, before Clayton Kershaw won that World Series, to be compared with Greg Maddox, and the reason why Greg Maddox can maybe sleep a little bit better at night is that, yeah, I mean, you know what, I might not have been as dominant as I was during the regular season, but hell, you see this ring I got with the Atlanta Braves in 1995? You can kiss my ass because I got myself that ring. Now, Clayton Kershaw, I mean, yeah, you could talk about, well, in this situation, he didn't do this. In this situation, he didn't do that. And in these playoffs, he didn't do this. And in this playoff game, he didn't do that. But Clayton Kershaw can sit there and say, y'all can kiss my ass because in 2020, I don't give a damn if it was COVID. I don't give a damn if they only played 60 games. I don't give a damn about if they had to play the World Series at a remote location or at a neutral uh, location. Don't care. A championship is a championship. No one's saying that Tim Duncan has won four championships in one asterisk because of the strike-shortened season uh, back when he won his first championship with the San Antonio Spurs. Every single team playing in Major League Baseball this year played by the same rules at the Los Angeles Dodgers. So guess what? In this season, the Dodgers are the championship. The Dodgers are the champions, and Clayton Kershaw and Dave Roberts have nothing to be ashamed of. Champions are champions. And what? Clayton Kershaw now? What does this mean? I'm guessing that he's... I'll say it. You want me to say it? I'll say it. He's the, uh, he's the GOAT in terms of this generation as far as pitchers are concerned. This cements it. This seals it. Had the honor, had the privilege of a few years ago, me and my man David Brody going up to uh, L.A., and watching the uh, Dodgers play the Mets and having the opportunity to see Clayton Kershaw throw a gem against the New York Mets. Fantastic. I was like, hey, man, you know, bucket list. Go to Dodger Stadium. And what better way to uh, scratch off that bucket list uh, moment in my life and to uh, go ahead and watch the best baseball player or the best baseball pitcher of my generation pitch on the day where I got the privilege to go to uh, Dodger Stadium. Great atmosphere, Vince Scully on the uh, scoreboard, you know, introducing, welcoming everybody to the uh, to the ballpark. Beautiful females around us. It was May, so they were nice. They were uh, not scantily clad, but scantily enough for me to 
you know, for me and Dave to give a thumbs up. So uh, just a great atmosphere, just a great time. The expectations were met, so it was awesome. Now I just got Fenway Park and Wrigley Field to go to, and I'll be good. I went to Yankee Stadium, went to Dodger Stadium, so there's just two more ballparks to go for me to uh, scratch that off my bucket list in terms of stadiums or uh, ball fields that I want to go to. So, But, you know, back to uh, the Dodgers. You know, c- congratulations to them, world champions. First time, as I mentioned before, since Kirk Gibson in the I don't believe what I just saw, courtesy of Joe Buck, game one, Kirk Gibson's home run, two-run shot off of then the unhittable Dennis Eckersley. You had to throw a slider, really? Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Um, Mentioning before about the City of Champions, Los Angeles, California, really quickly, the Lakers won their 17th overall championship, and their first since 2010, winning the series over Miami, the Miami Heat in six games, the LeBron versus... Pat Riley series, winning the championship. The Lakers tied the Boston Celtics for the most NBA championships by a franchise with 17. You can thank Bill Russell for 11 of those. LeBron James was named the MVP, the finals MVP, most valuable player for the fourth time in his career. He became the first player in league history to be named finals MVP with three different teams. That would be two with the Heat, one with the Cavaliers, and one with the Los Angeles Lakers. So he's also the fourth player to win the NBA NBA Finals with three different teams. So who was the other one? Did John Sally, one of those guys. Did John Sally win with the Pistons, the Bulls, the Lakers, right? Uh, Ori won with the Rockets, Spurs, and Lakers. I'm trying to think of guys who just, you know, at the tail. It's always like, you know, a player who... Won two championships with, you know, being a vital part of the team. And then the other championship, he just kind of, you know, went along for the ride. Um, or he wasn't one, but I know he won one. So I'm trying to think of guys who had won a lot of championships but played on multiple teams. I know Shaq, Shaq was, no, Shaq didn't win one in Orlando. Okay, Wilt won two, but that one with Philly and one with, okay, so I don't know, man. My head's starting to hurt on that one. Basically, LeBron did something that was pretty good. Um... And also, the Lakers became the first team since 2007-2008, the Boston Celtics, to go directly from a non-playoff season to a championship season. They finished the season before, speaking of the Lakers, they had gone 37-45. and 45. They finished in 10th place in the Western Conference, one game ahead of the Minnesota Timberwolves, and one game behind the Sacramento Kings! I mean, when LeBron, because LeBron, you know, leaving Cleveland, going to L.A., signing that four-year, $134 million contract, and he was like, hey, man, you know, we're preaching patience, 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 patience. I know you got a young squad here, and I can't wait to, I can't wait to work with Lonzo and Brandon Ingram, and, you know, we got ourselves a good young core, and I'm going to grow with these guys, and this, that, and the other. Well, that shit lasted about, I don't know, half a season, three-fourths of a season before he was like, yeah, no, nah, that's okay, um... You go ahead and you get me Anthony Davis and get me get me another coach. Uh, so there you go. So the rotation that they had, they had Lonzo, Contavious Caldwell Pope, LeBron, Brandon Ingram, Cal Kuzma, JaVale McGee. Yeah, that wasn't getting it done. It's not getting it done when you have Lance Stevenson, Josh Hart, Mo Wagner, and Tyson Chandler in your rotation. Not getting it done. Not getting it done. God bless Luke Walton, but no, we needed something a little bit different. So LeBron only plays 55 games because of a uh, groin pull. He's pulled it in the uh, Christmas game where they blew out the uh, Golden State Warriors. The annual, when the Golden State Warriors were good, go to L.A. and get 
blown out by an inferior Los Angeles Lakers team. They did that for like they did that for like three years straight, like one time when they were rolling, when they were winning championships. There would always be that one game they would go to the Staples Center and just get crushed. Even Steve Kerr, you know, acknowledged it. But uh, LeBron gets hurt. He missed 17 consecutive games, plays the lowest amount of games in his career, and they're like, yeah, this shit ain't happening. I don't got time. I know I preach patience and all that kind of stuff. Bullshit. I'm 33, 34 years old. I've got a lot of mileage on these tires, even though the tires are still very good. I need to catch MJ. That's the only thing left for me to do. I need to also appease what's going down in L.A. because this is a Kobe town. God bless Kobe and his beautiful daughter, uh, Gianna, Gianna, who were still living at the time. But, you know, Laker fans were like, nah, man, we don't give a fuck what you did in Miami. We don't give a fuck what you did in Cleveland. We don't care about you being King James and all that bullshit. This is Kobe town, baby. This is championship town, baby. This is magic town, baby. This is Jerry West town, baby. This is what I'm talking about. Don't be fucking coming in here talking about what you did in other towns and other places. We don't give a fuck. We don't care if people are comparing you to MJ. Fuck MJ. You ain't even as good as our boy Kobe. So get the fuck out of here with that noise talking about we need to give you a parade because you decided to go to the Lakers. If you want to have us praise your name, homeboy, you better go ahead and win yourself a championship. And you better do it sooner rather than later or else you will always be the guy who couldn't get it done. And, and, and at least in L.A., you will never, ever come close to the, to the, uh, the acclaim and the love that we gave Kobe. Shit, you're coming here at the tail end of your career. You're doing what Will Chamberlain did near the end of his career, coming in here trying to get a chip. Man, fuck that bullshit. You just, you know, Will came in, fuck that. This is still Jerry and, and Elgin's team. Just because the Big Dipper came in here and he averaged 50 points a game in 61-62, that don't mean shit to us. What does that mean to us? We need to get us a championship there, big man. So what the fuck are you going to do? Same thing with LeBron. Kobe got his five. Shaq got his uh, uh, three. What the fuck are you going to do? King. So LeBron was like, yeah, man, I need to uh, shake things up a little bit. Brought in Anthony Davis, made the trade, traded Lonzo, traded Brandon Ingram, traded Josh Hart, three first-round draft picks, including the Lakers' number four pick, which I guess then um, New Orleans traded to Cleveland, which was used for Darius Garland out of Vanderbilt. The jury is still out on that. But basically, this was a win-win situation when the Lakers acquired AD in July of 2019. Win-win situation for both the uh, Pelicans and the Lakers. It's a situation where the Lakers might have won the battle, but the Pelicans might win the war if we revisit this trade five, ten years from now. Because basically the Lakers managed through away their future to uh, win now. And when you've got LeBron James... I mean, you know, is there any other player, really, is there any player in NBA history outside of MJ and Magic and all those guys to where it's like, if you're going to kowtow, if you're going to bend over and take it with no Vaseline and no, and no gift or no note or no breakfast in the morning and no goodbye kiss, if you're going to be subservient and you're going to be that big of a bitch to somebody, wouldn't it be for LeBron? Because, yeah, LeBron can be a headache. Yeah, LeBron can be a little annoying. A little. LeBron can be, you know, I mean, like, come on, man. What the fuck? Could you just stop with the game playing? Could you just stop with the bullshit and come on? LeBron can LeBron can have his diva-type qualities, what Superstar doesn't. 
But one thing LeBron is going to guarantee you, he's going to put you through a lot of shit. He's going to put you through a lot of nonsense. He's going to put you through a lot of headache. He's going to put you through a lot of nonsense. And he's also going to put you in a lot of opportunities to win basketball games. And not just win basketball games, to win championships. He did it in his first seven years in Cleveland in terms of getting a undermanned team to the NBA Finals. Then he goes to Miami and he brings them to championships along with along with uh, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and, and such. But how many championships has those guys won since LeBron left? Then he goes back to Cleveland, and he delivers the first championship in about five or six decades uh, to that uh, city. Then he goes to L.A., and this is what he does now. Man's been in the league going on now, what, 17, 18, 19 years? And he's gotten to, what, 10, 11 championships? Championship rounds? Four uh, championships? So, yeah. It was a situation where you have to mortgage your future. Don't be talking about, well, yeah, LeBron, we really can't build around you too much because we don't want to give up too much of our draft capital because in 2025, you know, that could be huge for us if we surrender those first-round picks. LeBron ain't hearing that bullshit. So if you're an organization, you would be derelict in your duties if you didn't go ahead and do this stuff. So mortgaging your future... To get Anthony Davis, the next generation's Tim Duncan, languishing in, in uh, New Orleans under bad management, rotating management, a bad GM, uh, you know, a, a, in a market where they really don't care about basketball, that don't appreciate your talents. Yeah, Anthony Davis was there for the taking. He was there for the wanting. He was there for the needing. The Lakers needed him. They got him. They mortgaged their future to get him. For New Orleans, it turned out great, especially when they uh, got Zion. If Zion can reach his potential or get anywhere close to his potential, fuck yeah, the New Orleans Pelicans could look back on this trade when they're winning championships in 2023 and 24 and 25 and 26 around that time period, being one of the more elite, being the better teams in the NBA, having Zion save them from a possible relocation to Vegas or Norfolk or Vancouver or Seattle and say, yeah, that trade for the uh, for Anthony Davis, trading one superstar and then getting in another, who turned out to have a bigger impact in us than the guy who's going to go down as one of the better power forwards who's ever played and one of the best power forwards of his generation in Anthony Davis. Yeah, it was worth it. Yeah, it was worth it. And the Lakers are going to be sitting there with LeBron's five championship rings and AD's two or three championship rings and say, yeah, the trade was worth it also. So, Basically, what AD did for LeBron is what Paul Gasol did for Kobe Bryant. Basically, save... Well, I shouldn't say... That's, that's too harsh of a word. Save is a too harsh of a word. Elevate their legacies. Because before Paul got to the Lakers, before they made that trade, and then they went out and drafted Andrew Bynum and got Lamar Odom and brought in Ron Artest on the whims and the dare and built around them. And you know, Derek Fisher matured and Kobe Bryant finally matured and got himself to a position where what true leadership was all about, what being a true teammate was being all about, what a true leader is all about while still having possessing that Mamba-type uh, mentality. Before that... Kobe was averaging, what, a couple of years before Paul came uh, Paul came along? I mean, he was averaging, what, 35, 36 points a game, but he was doing it with Chris Mims, and he was doing it with Smush Parker, and he was doing it with Frank Hamlin as the coach, and he was doing it with Rudy Tomjanovich as the coach. And yeah, it was a situation where, I mean, Kobe seems to me that argument about whose team was it during that three-peat 
Was it your team, Shaq's team? Who's, who was the more important piece to that championship? Well, after Shaq has now gone to Miami and wins another championship, his fourth, looks like we've got our answer now, don't we? You can score a lot of points and you can do a lot of this and you can do a lot of that and you can sell a lot of jerseys and Nike's deal is fantastic and you know you can put up a bunch of points and you're selling California's own homeboy, but damn, championships? You're like Jordan before he won his first. All about scoring titles and not winning and, and, and short on championships. You got Paul Gasol. Ah, okay, cool. Cool. Alright. That elevated his legacy even more because he won a championship, not just one, but two, and made it to the finals a couple of times with him being the man, with him being the face of the league, with him being the best player in the league, with him being the guy, with him owning the league, something that he dreamt about when he was at Laurel Marion High School. So Paul Gasol did that for him, similar to what Anthony Davis is doing for LeBron. LeBron James ain't winning no damn championship without Anthony Davis. LeBron's great. LeBron's awesome still at 35, 36 years of age. LeBron, at the very least, top, what, number three, three best player, or third best player in the game? Strong argument. He's still the best after 18 years. All that being said, he ain't winning next, uh, he ain't winning that championship if Anthony Davis isn't on this team. So, if he wants to catch Jordan, as far as, I don't know, getting six, damn. Let's put it this way. If he's going to get the six, numbers, if he's going to get the number six, number six is going to have to be because of Anthony Davis. Now, I thought that AD was the key in last season's championship run. I thought that he would have to be the key in that NBA Finals because I thought the biggest threat for the Miami Heat wasn't so much Jimmy Butler as it was Bam Adebayo. Because I thought if worst came to worst with worst Worst came to worst with, oh, fuck it, uh, with um, Butler. If he decided to go off, well, then you could put LeBron on him or you could match him up or somehow rotate LeBron and AD on Jimmy. Maybe put in KCP. There were wing defenders possibly that could deal with Jimmy Butler a little bit, a little bit, slow him down just a little bit, give him a couple of speed bumps if Jimmy starts to go off. But... Who on that squad for the Lakers was going to deal with a bam on the bayou that we saw in their playoff games against the Celtics and against the uh, Milwaukee Bucks? The key for that was going to have to be Anthony Davis. It wasn't going to be JaVale McGee. It wasn't going to be Dwight. It wasn't going to be LeBron. The key to slowing down the one guy that could devastate that team, the Lakers team, in the finals both offensively and defensively was bam on the bayou. And on the other end, who was going to guard Anthony Davis? Again, you could put Jimmy Butler, a very good defender on LeBron, LeBron slow him down. But who was going to stop Anthony Davis? So I thought the key to that series was going to be AD. I was wrong. <laughs> LeBron was being LeBron. But moving on, if we're speaking about, you know, in year 2022, and the Lakers now look at the three-peat with the combo of LeBron and AD, if they're going to get there, by that time, I will say this with the Charles Barkley type of guarantee that AD is going to be that guy. And if he reaches six, I mean, y'all can talk about, well, yeah, I mean, LeBron has six, but shit, Anthony had to carry him to number six. MJ carried his entire team for all six championships. Blue to blue to blue. That's okay, but you know what? Six is six. It's in the mix. So, you know, 
The argument itself makes me sort of sick. But, um, yeah, so the champions for 2020, the city of champions, wasn't Boston, Boston, Massachusetts, wasn't Washington, D.C., it wasn't Atlanta, Georgia, it wasn't Dallas, Texas, it wasn't Minneapolis, Minnesota, it wasn't Miami, Florida, it wasn't New Orleans, Louisiana, the champions of 2020 in terms of city, I bring to you the Los Angeles, California folks. Raise up, cheer. You are number one. Hold it now. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The review 2020 is getting closer. The year is getting closer. Hang in there. Hang in there, man. Don't, hey, nobody's promised tomorrow. Be smart. You're going to go out and have a good time to bring in 2021. Please do it responsibly. Regarding your age, please do it responsibly, please. I know that the the, the, the ask of someone being responsible, someone who's my age or someone in their 60s or someone in their 40s, someone who's married with kids is a lot different than someone who's 18, 20, 22 and is going to look out, look, go out, look like it's going to you know, have some fun and do all these type of things and celebrate the way I celebrated when I was your age. Please, man, just be responsible, okay? Have a great time. See if you can, you know, get somebody. See if you can find somebody to sleep with. See if you can find somebody to dance with. See if you can find somebody to have some fun with. See if you can do all those type of things, man. Just remember, please, you got a mother, you got a father, you got aunts, you got uncles, you got friends, you got people who love you. They want to see you for 2021. They want to see you January 1st. They want to see you get through this night unscathed, unharmed, and alive. So please, be smart, and that also applies to those who want to act like they're 20 and 25 and 28 when you're 50, 60, and 70. Just please be smart, and please, you know, do the right thing, please. That's all I ask. You might not know me, but I would be really disappointed if you if you didn't. People listen to this podcast talking about, man, who the fuck are you? Get the fuck out of here. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Social injustice, we're speaking about, so critical, so important, so woven into what 2020 in sports was all about. I've patterned my podcast. I don't want to talk about just stats and who's better and who's the better player and who's going to be doing this. I'm just not more, I'm more than just sports. You know, you want to find out half that shit? Go to fucking ESPN and, and, and ESPN.com and do that stuff. If you want the ins and outs and the nooks and crannies and the in-depth and the office kind of stuff about the NBA, you know, go 
listen to Zach Lowe's podcast. Go listen to Bill Simmons' podcast. Go listen to Brian Windhorst's podcast. Go listen to the Ringer podcast. Same thing with football, man. If you want to get down to the nuts and bolts and the nitty and the gritty, go listen to Robert Mays over on the Athletic Podcast. Go do all that stuff, man. But I'm not just, I'm not into that. I just don't have, I don't, I'm not into that. I'm not into watching 15 games a night and then watching the uh, replays and then taking on your arduous notes and detailed notes and all that kind of stuff. That's not my deal. My deal is to talk about what's going on in the world of sports the best of my ability to do my homework and also the interest of the outside social activities and the things that are going on in society that are bringing themselves into the arena, into the stadiums, and affecting the play, and affecting the personnel, and affecting the coaches, and affecting the issues of what's going on in the world of sports. And who's going to be the leader? Who's going to be the guy that's not going to shut up and dribble? That's not going to just shut up and coach? That's not going to just shut up and own? That's not going to just shut up and pass the ball? He's not going to just shut up and score touchdowns? I'm interested in those guys, and I'm interested how their thoughts and their feelings and their impact on what they're doing outside of the playing field impacts what is going on in terms of winning, in terms of leadership, in terms of chemistry, in terms of the impact and the love and the affection and the thoughts and the opinions that that player, that coach, that owner, that GM has on the community, has on the state, has on the region, has on the fans, has on everything. So that's why when you know the George Floyd deal went down and everything that was going down and LeBron coming to the forefront and Jalen Brown coming to the forefront and Bubba Wallace coming to the forefront. That's why I am a disciple. That's why I admire uh, someone like a Jamel Hill so much because not only is she, uh, not only is she intelligent, not only is she beautiful, not only is she attractive, but uh, she's unapologetically black and she's unafraid. She's strong. She's uh my ideal character-wise of, woman, of what a woman should be. I mean, from the outside looking in, I don't know her personally, never met her, but from everything that she projects, in my opinion, I mean, that's the type of woman that I can be highly attracted to because of her courage, because of her intellect, because of her, because of her bravery, because of her uh, unwillingness to uh, back down, her uh, unwillingness to sugarcoat what she says. So for me, it's kind of like how I do my podcast. You know, not only talk about... Who's going to be doing what? Who's going to be winning the Super Bowl? Who do you think the MVP is? Who's the best team in this sport? Who's the best player in that sport? But also to talk about some of these things that happened in 2020, social issues bleeding into the world of sports and how that affected what's going on in the sports world today, man. I tell you, because not since the 1960s, not since the days of Ali and Jim Brown and Willie Brown and and uh, Kurt Flood and Oscar Robertson and Bill Russell and these guys have we've seen uh, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, uh, Hank Aaron, all of these guys. Not since that time period have we seen sports and social issues be so intertwined. And black athletes speaking out and using their platforms, using their influence, using their social media. You know, Booker talking about how can I bro- how can I grow my brand? How can I grow my social media following? Well, you know what, Booger? If these black men do it in a responsible way and it leads them to have a platform where they can talk about what's happening as far as police brutality is concerned, I think that is helping out their teammates. I think that is doing a positive thing uh, for those around them. Not just in a locker room or not just to put more money in the pockets of an old, rich, privileged white owner, but I also think that it does a lot to bring unity, to bring cohesion, to bring uh, love and affection and all of that type of bullshit, not only to the locker room, but also to the 
society to the community as a whole. So black athletes speaking out, using their platforms to speak boldly on issues like racial injustice and police brutality. Love it. Absolutely love it. So for the few of the black people who were murdered, murdered by domestic terrorists posing as police officers, where we're speaking about Rashard Brooks and Breonna Taylor and Stephen Clark and Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and Freddie Gray, Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Tanisha Anderson, Jacob Blake. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And of course, we saw in 2020, the straw that broke the camel's back was, of course, George Floyd and the way that George Hill and Jalen Brown and uh, LeBron James and Chris Paul and, and everybody associated with the NBA, the way that those guys spoke up so strongly, so unapologetically, and said and voiced their displeasures and did the things that they need to do. Uh, following the video of Wisconsin of a man being shot down by the police, Jacob Blake, the fact that the Milwaukee Bucks during the playoffs would go ahead and decide, you know what, we're not going to go ahead, we're not going to uh, play this game. And the effect that those guys had on these other sports and other sports athletes. And, you know, you have fucking assholes who are privileged up to the gills because of their skin color like Clay Travis who believes that he knows more about black folks and what the black needs and what the black issues are and how to better equip and better to take care of them than actual black people. How he was talking about, well, what that's going to do, that's no big deal, the long-term game and all this kind of stuff, you know, putting down... Of uh, the stuff that these strong black men were doing. Well, guess what? It started a conversation. Get Guess what? It got everybody's attention. Guess what? If you're speaking about long game, yeah, what George Floyd and all those guys are doing, is it going to stop police brutality the next day? No. Is it mean, going to mean ending racism the next day? No. Is it going to mean like fucking assholes like yourself are going to get educated on what they can do to help out the black communities and others to uh, move forward and gain true equality? No. But it started something a building block, a stepping stone, a step for something down the road to where those things, unity, harmony, peace, love, uh, those type of things can happen. So when you see the influence, it wasn't LeBron James who decided everybody was going to be shut down. It was fucking George, uh, George Hill, uh, reserve guard, who was spearheading the movement to go ahead and say, you know what, we are not really feeling it in terms of the progress that has been taking place. And so because of that, we're not going to play. We're going to go ahead and we're going to uh, let our voices, let our actions be known. And again, do we expect scumbag politicians to all, all of a sudden say, oh, okay, in that case, let me go ahead and do what needs to be done to um, really throw down the law at these domestic terrorists who murder innocent, law-abiding uh, black folks? And folks of uh, uh, folks of color, the communities of uh, oppressed, no. But it started the conversation, and it started that movement. So it was that type of deal in 2020, where athletes, and more than just black athletes, white athletes also, just said, "I had enough. I've had enough." And for a black man, I'm not expecting white folks to be at the leader, to be the leaders of the pack of this movement. I'm not expecting white folks to be as outraged or or as passionate as we are. I'm, I'm not expecting that. But what I am expecting white athletes and white folks to do is to recognize what's going down. To bring these bring these teachings, bring these lessons, 
bring these experiences of what they see with black folks and what we're telling them what's really going down and bring it across the tracks and bring it to your white brothers and sisters and talk about, hey man, you know, next time you want to sit there after you watch Tucker Carlson or some other bullshit on OAN or some nonsense like that, or you listen to that fucking idiot Rush Limbaugh or something like that, you know, downgrade, put down, not uh, give credence, not give the true respect to what's happening in the community when the black community is saying this is the stuff that's going down, this is the stuff that we're angry about. Hey, man, I'm here to tell you, man, that shit's for real. That's for real. And let me let me educate you guys because you might be too scared, you might be too arrogant to you might be too stubborn you might be too scared to go across and ask us ask us in terms of you know i feel this way why do i feel this way why shouldn't i feel this way i'm afraid of being attacked i'm afraid of being called a racist so i'm just going to kind of stay on my side of the street and not really engage for those white folks or for those folks who are at that point it's important for the athletes of importance who are considering their teammates, their brothers, right? Don't we hear that all the time in sports, professional sports? Don't they hear that? Don't we hear that all the time in football? You know, I'm out here with my brothers. I got to do this with my brothers. So for football on that football team, the white brothers need to take what they're hearing and learning and experiencing with the black brothers, take it across the tracks to their community and educate them. To say, no, nah, man, this is some shit that's going down where it's like, this is for real. This is no joke. This is no game. Nobody's playing a race card. No one's feeling sorry. No one's angling for something. No one is asking for something that they don't deserve. You know, they're not delusional. They're not being greedy. This is what's going on for real. So for 2020, I think because of that, it was huge in that sense. Someone like the Washington football team finally changing his name. Now, again, is that going to bring about Fairness for the Native Americans. I mean, shit, you're speaking about black folks and other folks being oppressed. There ain't nobody in this country that's being oppressed like the Native Americans. I mean, they're off the grid, period. I mean, they have no sound, no voice, no nothing. I mean, we've got people in place to shake things up. And from a sporting standpoint, we got ourselves a Kaepernick. We got ourselves a LeBron. You know, we've got ourselves a Malcolm Jenkins. We got ourselves a Patrick Mahomes. We got ourselves... Somebody who's out there that can stir the pot, who has some influence. The Native Americans have nobody. They are forgotten. They are disbanded. They are, they don't even count. So you're speaking about crime rate sky high. You're speaking about alcoholism, alcoholism sky high. You're speaking about domestic violence and, and abuse sky high. You're speaking about, you know, a police, uh, you know, justice Criminal justice in their communities are, are non-existent. So, yeah, changing the Washington football team, changing their nickname, which was clearly, clearly racist, is not going to all of a sudden change those ills which are happening in the Native American community. But, goddamn, as I mentioned before, man, I mean, that fight, let's bring them along with us. Our fight for police, or for, you know... Um, Police reform and every kind of stuff that's affecting our communities. Man, let's bring in the Native Americans too. And this was a good first step. Now, what we can't do is say, okay, we changed the nickname of the Washington football team. Now, go away. We don't need you anymore. We threw you that bone. Go away. Continue to build your rug. Uh, continue to build your places where we can gamble and everything like that. And that's fine. And we don't care about you. We have to continue to discuss what's happening 
in the Native American community, just like we are for the uh, black community, the brown community, the Hispanic community, the gay community, all of those have to be included in one. And the person who's going to take that next step is going to be interesting. It's going to be really interesting in terms of which one, which person from the reservation here in, the, in this country is going to come in and be that person. When is that going to happen? And is this country going to be ready for it? It's going to be interesting. But yeah, we're talking about a nickname that has been like that for decades. What, since 1933, 36, Washington had that nickname? And they finally changed it. That's huge. And you're speaking 2020, the year in review, the social justice change amongst athletes, making a difference, making the stands, having an impact. How about Bubba Wallace? That guy. I don't know if he's going to be called the Jackie Robinson of NASCAR. But boy, what he did, being NASCAR's only full-time black driver, who was, quote-unquote, a driving, get that, a driving force? Yeah. For uh, NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag. And then you had that bullshit two weeks later about, after trying to uh, do his part to de-racist the sport with his fan base, the fact that the news was discovered in this garage before the circus post-pandemic restart at Talladega, the FBI indicated that it wasn't a noose and it's been there since 2019. Fuck you, a noose is a noose. So basically, NASCAR was like, Bubba, it's up to you to explain. I love the solidarity amongst the drivers with him to let them know that he's got their back. But they also showed that in this situation, we don't got, their, we don't got your back on everything. But the message throughout that was love over hate every day. That was Wallace's message. And uh, so what he did with the NASCAR. I mean, that was huge. And he's the only one doing it. LeBron has a boatload of, of uh, Negroes out there helping him out for basketball. Same thing with Malcolm Jenkins and others in football. You're speaking about a guy, only one, the only black man in a sport. And he's taking on this crusade, this courageous crusade, knowing the backlash he's going to face from that fan base uh, was uh, remarkable. I don't know what the man of the year or the sportsman of the year or anything like that. But I don't see how it's not Bubba Wallace because compared to what LeBron James did in terms of, you know, rallying and doing all these type of things, Bubba Wallace did was much more um, courageous. And what LeBron James did was courageous, but, but Bubba Wallace did, man, I applaud him. Wendell's World of Sports 2020 year in review, the podcast. Naomi Osaka, how about this, made her statement. That she's now going to be the face, the voice, the consciousness of women's tennis. She's going to be her generation's Althea Gibson or Billie Jean King or Martina Navratilova, the Williams sisters. She's going to be next in line. A woman with unbelievable talent to play tennis. But mentally, you know, sometimes she had her ups and downs. I know she was young and everything, but man, did she take a huge step forward. Not only did she win her second U.S. Open title in three years, but... After that, I mean, her decision to sit out a day during an open tune-up tournament in August after the shooting of Jacob Blake, which resulted in the tournament being paused in its entirety, that's power, that's influence, that takes leadership, that takes maturity, that takes strength, that takes inner strength, that takes moral fiber, character fiber, those are type of things. Then, in Flushing Meadow for the U.S. Open, she donned a mask bearing the names of black men and women killed by police and others. So, big step for her. Big step for her. So, I'm telling you, man, I was very pleased and I was very proud 
of what went down in 2020 in terms of the social um, the athletes responding to social injustices, taking upon the torch or sharing the message that Colin Kaepernick uh, first got into the to the spotlight. I mean, he wasn't the first. I mean, we're speaking as far back as the beginning of the early part of the uh, 20th century. If we want to be talking about those who were, you know, out there in terms of speaking about what's going down and their different ways, different eras, different times in this country, different times in this world uh, meant that you had to voice your displeasure. Sometimes you couldn't voice your displeasure. Joe Lewis couldn't voice his displeasure. Jackie, uh, Jesse Owens couldn't voice his displeasure. Fritz Pollard couldn't voice his displeasure. You, you do it in different ways. So Jack Johnson, Jesse Owens, um, you know, those guys moving up to Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, uh, Tommy Lewis, John Carlos, Arthur Ashe, Willie Brown. You know, these guys moving all through up the ways. You know, Magic Johnson, this, you do it in different ways. My, uh, Michael Jordan. Did it his way, not by his voice, not by being a yeller and a screamer and calling out Whitey and all this kind of stuff. He did it by donating his money. He's got a lot of money to do it. Every little bit helps, and not one way is the correct way. So moving forward in this world that we're living in, in this environment that we're living in, that's still uh, sick with disease of ignorance and bigotry and misunderstanding and stereotypes and racism and oppression, that um, I was proud of the teams. I was proud of the sports teams, more some than others. But I was proud of these guys in taking a step, taking an important step, taking a needed step to future uh, discussions and future actions toward racial equality and harmony amongst everybody.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A year in review about what went down in 2020 as we count down the hours, the minutes, the seconds, depending upon when you're listening to this podcast. Shalom. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum. Konnichiwa. Kepasa. Bonjour. Peace. Love. Harmony, unity to everybody. Um, Athletes who died in 2020. For myself, there's just too many to mention. And we're speaking about this podcast that's being listened to in places like India, in Brazil, and France, and Australia, and Canada, and all over the world. So, I... And you know, Diego Maradona is huge in uh, Argentina, but didn't impact me as much as the guy that I'm going to be mentioning now. So when I speak about the notable passings, those who have died in 2020, I'm speaking more about me because I know in other countries there are athletes who have passed away that didn't have any type of impact personally to me in America or for those who are sports fans in America, but for me, in dealing with the history of this country and the sports that I grew up on and the sports that I love, for myself, the deaths of you know legends like Bob Gibson and Luke Brock and Gail Sayers and the only man to throw a perfect game in the World Series, Don Larson, the great Paul Hording, Tom Seaver, Lou Olson, Don Shula, David Stern, Jerry Sloan, Casey Jones. Uh, for me personally, even closer, if we're speaking about Wes Sunsell, All-American at Louisville, the NBA Rookie of the Year and MVP Finals MVP when he was with the then Washington Bullets, played his entire career with the uh, Baltimore Bullets and then the Washington Bullets and brought the only championship to the Washington, D.C. area in terms of professional basketball with Bobby Dandridge and Tom Henderson and Kevin Grevy and Helvin Hayes and Kevin um, Mitch Kupchak and, and, and those guys, Dick Mata, Bernie Bickerstaff, I think coaching uh, coaching, uh, coaching staff. So, yeah, he 
made that transition from that and became a coach, front office executive, a GM. Died June 2nd following a lengthy heart ailment, uh, lengthy battles with multitude of illnesses. He was 74 years old, so, you know, Wes Unsell being that guy. Going, going down in the Washington, D.C. area in terms of the Pantheon and sports uh, as being right up there in the, route of the Mount Rushmore of great professional athletes in the Washington, D.C. area. So, you know, basically, you know, that hit me a little bit more. My first game, first professional basketball game was with the Washington Bullets near the end of West Unsell's career. They were playing the Los Angeles Lakers, and I just had to go see Kareem and Magic and those guys. But, uh, you know, at the Cap Center over in Landover, Maryland, you know, watching the uh, Bullets and West Unsell and, Bullets fever, getting past the Iceman, I mean, it meant a lot to me. So rest in peace to uh, Wes Unsell. Rest in peace to Brody Harper, Luke Harper. I'm sorry, Brody League, Luke Harper, John Huber, that was his real name. Man, the cause of death was unknown, but his wife Amanda noted on Instagram that he had been battling a lung issue that was not, that was not COVID-related. And he was being treated at the Mayo Clinic, reportedly was surrounded by loved ones when he died. Um, wrestler John Huber. I had no flipping idea. I saw AEW last night and saw the tribute show to him. And that was like, damn. And I, when his passing first happened, I was like, yeah, Brody Lee. Damn, what happened to that guy? Because he had won the, uh, he had won the belt. You know, he destroyed Cody Rhodes. And I thought this was got, this was going to be the guy with the dark order that was going to be set up for being this, you know, this monster heel fraction with him being the guy, and you know they had a lot of big plans for him. Well, he lost a rematch, and a I forgot what the stipulation what that was. What was it like? They were chained together or some nonsense like that. But he lost, and it was kind of like what happened to him. He he fought um, Orange Cassidy and a couple of other guys, and then nothing. And I was like, is this guy injured? Is he off to Japan? I mean, what, what's going on with this guy? Well, I found out that he was battling an illness, and he passed. And just the outpouring of emotion from everybody, from the McMahons to those still in the WWE, from Big E to Eric Rowan came on the show uh, with uh, on AEW uh, last night and uh, did their thing. Everybody in AEW, a lot of folks in WWE just talked about how great this guy was and just talked about what a family man this guy was and talked about how much he loved his kids and how much of a great guy that he was. I'm not, I don't know Brody Lee. I've never met Brody Lee. In fact, I I don't think I've ever seen him out of character. So I'm not going to sit there and be like, really? But it was just like, wow, I didn't know. I know he'd been on the Indies for a while. He was a veteran of the uh, sport, but I didn't know that he was that huge. And just the emotion and just everything that went into it last night while watching AEW, it was just like, damn, man. The only thing that I can come close to in terms of that type of outpouring and showering of emotion and just love and affection and hurt and everything was when Eddie Guerrero died. I mean, I don't think anybody can top that. You see that on uh, Raw. That's on YouTube if you still want to see that. But goodness gracious. Fucking sake, it's alive. I mean, as much as people adored John Huber, rightfully so, I guess, after listening to what these guys were saying about him, I don't think anything could have topped Eddie Guerrero in terms of... Well, I mean, I, I guess for me, I mean, damn, I was... 
24 hours, I would I was kind of out of it when Eddie Guerrero died because I had followed him. At the, I had followed him when he was AEW, AEW, not AEW, but I followed him when he was in WCW where he was with Perry Saturn and Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit and, you know, there were the filthy animals or the outside animals or something like that. And, you know, when AEW had that, shit, I keep seeing AEW. When WCW had that two-tier system where you had the old aging guys who were getting all the play and getting all the good booking like Hogan and Nash and Hall and the NWO were doing all those things and all that type of bullshit. And then below all that stuff, you have the second tier guys who might not have had the size and physicality and the overall like look of a monster like Guerrero and Saturn and Jericho and those guys. But those motherfuckers could wrestle their goddamn asses off. So I remember Eddie from back in those days. Then he went to WW, then F and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, so when he died, and he died at 38, and he died like in Minneapolis in a bathroom in a hotel... You know, just living. I mean, he lived a hard life. So, I mean, you know, you try to kill yourself. You get hooked on, you know, drugs and painkillers and PEDs. I mean, unfortunately, that's going to catch up to him. And at 38, 39, it did. But it was unexpected. So when Guerrero passed, and it was just like, oh, my fucking God, man. What the fuck? And then you saw the um, testimonials given during that Raw, and you saw Chris Benoit, and this was before this was before we knew Chris Benoit was going to go off the deep end and do the heinous things that he did, and everything that he was facing, and the CTE, and and everything that was going on in his life, what he did to his son and uh, in 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 uh, his his wife, widow, uh, or Nancy Sullivan. Jesus fuck, man! When you saw. Benoit just break down, man. I mean, I'm sorry, man. I had, I had tears in my eyes. It was just like, man, it's like his father died, or it was just like it was unbelievable. It was just heartbreaking. In fact, just speaking about it now just kind of breaks my heart. Despite again what he would do in a short time afterwards. So yeah, John Huber, we haven't seen something like that. I mean, Owen Hart touched me. Guerrero touched me. But it was like Huber, and not to minimize his passing, of course, but damn, man, at least John Huber, who died way too young of 41, I mean, at least he was around his loved ones. At least he knew that, you know what, I, I, I'm not going to live to be 42. I'm not going to live, you know, an old age. I'm not going to live for my son to, you know, go to uh, middle school and fight through puberty and go through high school and get married and all that kind of stuff. I'm not, both of my sons, I'm not going to have the opportunity to do so. So I'm aware of that. I'm cognizant of that. So in my last days, hours, minutes, or whatever, I can kind of, you know, say, hey, you know, I love you, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. Let me leave a lasting impression to kind of help you get through this. So when he died, he died around loved ones. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm still struggling with was I didn't get to say goodbye to my dad. You know, when I came in the next day to see him, the nurses came out and told me and my mom that, you know, that morning he had died. So I didn't get an opportunity to say I love you or, you know, take it easy or I'll try to be a better human being or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, you know, one last hug or whatever. So, I mean, before he went to uh, eternal happiness and peace, at least Huber got the opportunity to uh, say goodbye. You wish he could have done that 45 to 50 years later on in life, but, 
you know, when the Lord said it's time to go, you know, so it was tough. So I was like, one of the passings, we couldn't even get out of 2020 without Marianne dying, Don Wells because of COVID, and uh, John Huber. Yeah, but uh, some of the other people that died that were, t- that were pioneers, Curly Neal, one of the signature members of the Harlem Globetrotters, he died um, this season or this year on March 26th. He was 77 years old. John Blake, you might not know who John Blake is. He played nose guard for the Oklahoma Sooners. He became the school's first black head coach in any sport. In 1996. Damn, y'all, it takes that fucking long. Now, I know the entire state is highly conservative, but geez, man, y'all couldn't even hire a basketball coach during that time period? You waited that long to hire John Blake, the coach of one of your teams at your university? He died of a heart attack July 23rd. He was 59 years old. Son of the great, or the father of the great Rock, uh, The Rock, Rocky Johnson, speaking of pioneers, Wrestler for the WWF, he died, and um, he, he was one of the, he was one of my guys. Him and Tony Atlas, first black men to uh, hold any type of uh, straps for the WWF when uh, they won the uh, tag team championships at Soul Patrol in 1983. And I remember Rocky Johnson, you know, fighting Don Morocco, Adrian Adonis, rest in peace, Iron Mike Sharp, Great Valentine, Buddy Rose. He did his stuff in the 1970s where he was fighting guys like Harley Race. That was a bad motherfucker, Harley Race. Jerry Lawler. So, I mean, you're speaking about pioneers. Here's a black man doing this stuff as the only black man, getting called nigger and all this type of stuff. But, you know, and the discrimination he had to face. Also knowing that this is not the NBA, this is not the NFL. Basically, when he was in these territories, he was probably the only black man or one of the very few black men doing his thing. And, you know, old school wrestlers who weren't the most uh, progressive when it came to race relations and racial harmony and understanding the plight of the black man. Rocky Johnson had to go through all of that. So a man who basically, I mean, you know, might say, hey, how about that? If it wasn't for Rocky Johnson, it wouldn't, there would would be no rock. I mean, in more ways than one, but, you know, Kofi Kingston and Big E and all of these guys, the rock and all of these guys, they owe their, uh, they owe a sense of gratitude Two guys like Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas and those guys who, who paved the way. So he, he passed away um, this this season. Rest in peace. He was a pioneer. Phyllis George passed away. She was, what, 70 years old? Yeah, she was 70 years old. She died of a blood clot, blood disorder on May 16th. She was the first female sportscaster on any TV network when she joined the uh, CBS pregame show with Irv Cross and... Um, Brent Musburger and, oh, who was the guy? Not Al Campanis. I always think about Al Campanis. Not him. The other, Jimmy the Greek. Is it Jimmy the Greek? The guy who said something stupid racially wise, and that was basically the end of his career. Yeah, but uh, but they did the CBS show. That uh, Phyllis George was the first person. So the females who are qualified that you see on the sports sportscast today, they owe a big props to a pioneer, Phyllis George. Because if it wasn't for her, I'm quite sure it would have been a lot longer before the Andrea Kramers and the Michelle Tafoyas and the uh, and others who uh, took that ball and ran with it would have gotten that opportunity. So, you know, 2020 was uh, tough. My biggest loss for myself personally, John Thompson, the coach of the Georgetown Hoyas. That's the reason why I'm a, <laughs> the reason why I love my Georgetown Hoyas so much. John Thompson, 
Won a championship in 1984. The, I like to say he was the first black coach to get the opportunity to really chase the dream of winning an NCAA championship. There were others qualified, just as qualified as Coach Thompson, to uh, win a championship. They just weren't afforded the opportunity. The John McClellans of the world and, 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 and those coaches in the HBCU schools they were just as qualified as John Thompson. John Chaney was just as qualified as John Thompson. Nolan Richardson, who later won a championship with Arkansas, but when he was t- coaching down at Texas El Paso and then Tulsa, I mean, he wasn't really given the opportunity to vie for a championship because of the color of his skin and some of the opportunities he might have had to move to a school with better resources and a better pedigree to get him in a position to win a championship. When John Thompson became the coach of the Georgetown Hoyas, Georgetown, when he came to the program, this wasn't Kentucky. This wasn't Indiana. This wasn't a blue blood when he came to Georgetown. They were 3-27 and when John Thompson came. And John Thompson was like, you know what? In this Lily White private school, Georgetown University, out there on M Street, off of M Street, in the uh, northwest side of town, the white side of town, the rich side of town of the Washington, D.C. area, I'm gonna, or you know, northwest D.C., I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go to the Spin Gardens. I'm going to go to the inner cities of Washington, D.C., and I'm going to get these players to come to this school, and not only are they going to help me win a championship, not only are they going to help me elevate my program, I'm also going to get these guys to graduate which is kind of like going to blow people's mind because black folks from poor inner city communities aren't supposed to be able to go to a school like Georgetown and not only play basketball at a high level, but also go ahead and graduate from a school like Georgetown. Uh, That was something that a lot of folks couldn't fathom, couldn't comprehend. Oh, bullshit, man. These guys must be taking, what, basket weaving? These guys must be taking telephone dialing? What the fuck? Nah, man, Ralph Dalton and the rest of these guys who came in, Eric Sleepy Floyd, who's now in Houston, being a lawyer, all these guys who came into Georgetown, yeah, man, they got real fucking degrees. Real degrees, just like the kid who's coming in from the uh, from the rich area of, of, of town. That was John Townsend. You walk into his office, that ball, the basketball, deflated basketball, don't let nine square inches of air determine your life and determine who you are. That was John Thompson, unapologetically black, strong, intimidatingly black. Had to be. Had to be. That was the man. That was America's black. That was, I guess you could say that was, that was the boogeyman were you speaking about. And because white people were scared and intimidated of him, not just because of his size, but also because of his size, his intelligence, and his strength not to back down, for white folks, a certain portion of white folks and others might have saw him as the boogeyman for black folks and for the black community, especially the black community in the uh, D.C. area where I grew up. I mean, that motherfucker was the president. That guy was the king. That guy was the end-all, the be-all. I mean, that guy was our hero in some regards because of uh, who he was all about, what he was all about, what he stood for, the person that he projected. He gave folks in the inner cities all across the country, like, damn, that's my, that's my Negro. That's my man right there. So, yeah, for me, my, my dream growing up was to play for John Thompson in Georgetown University. I was never good enough, even though I thought I was better than Bobby Winston. I was never good enough to play for Georgetown. That would have been a dream of mine. But, uh, yeah, John Thompson, for me, hit hard. I mean, he's the reason why I love basketball. He's the reason why I still love Georgetown. He's the reason why, one of the main reasons why I played basketball. I mean, you know, whatever. Really didn't make a, you know, 
But yeah, he's the reason why I just love the game of basketball so much. So when he died, I mean, this was the man who, um, this was the man who, uh, you know, was a true pioneer. So, you know, coached the 1988 Summer Olympic team uh, to a bronze medal. And for people who want to sit there and be bronze medal, hey, let me tell you something. During that college year, nobody wanted to play in the Olympics. They all, Purvis Ellison and a lot of these other guys who would have uh, played on the team and would have won the gold medal easily, they didn't want to play in the Summer Olympics. I don't know if it was because of Coach Thompson. A lot of these guys were trying for the NBA, but... You know, that was a unfair blemish. If you want to blame, you know, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, you only won the bronze medal and the gold in the Olympics. In 88, when they were playing against Arvidas Sabonis, when he was at his prime in the Russian uh, a team before they had broken off, before war and internal strife and civil wars had broken Russia off into certain sections and certain, you know, different countries. That, shit. <laughs> that, was a, that was a squad. That was a squad for that team to do as well as they did. Yeah, props up to uh, John Thompson. Miss him every day. And uh true hero, a true legend, a true pioneer. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. But uh, I guess you could say, uh, I mean, this is not a pride. This is not a, you know, whatever. But the biggest, most notable death in sports this year, of course, was the tragic death of Los Angeles Lakers legend Kobe Bryant. 41, 42 years old. He was among nine people who died in a helicopter crash in Calabasas on January 26th. A, do you remember where you were when you heard the news type of, uh, type of a situation? The crash claimed Bryant's daughter, uh, Gianna, and longtime Orange, coach, Orange, coast, uh, Orange Coast coach, college baseball coach, John Altabelli, along with his wife, Carrie, and daughter, Alyssa, and also those who died in the crash were Christina Mauser, Sarah, and Peyton Chester of Newport Beach, and the pilot. So it was, uh, that was a tough day. That week or so was a tough day. It really was. Uh, and it was remarkable, the story of Kobe Bryant. And where he began, where he started, and where he ended. I'm reading a book right now. I'm listening to an audio book right now. I got to pick it up. In fact, I haven't listened to it in a couple of weeks. And it talked about the uh, Lakers, the show, not the Showtime Lakers. I read that book by Jeff Perlman. But uh, speaking about the era of Shaquille and Kobe Bryant, that Laker team. And at the be- at the beginning, in the first couple of years, three or four or five years of his career, Kobe Bryant was an asshole. This guy was a fucking asshole. He was a privileged, cocky, arrogant, selfish, self-absorbed, immature, coach-killing asshole. You read this book, and you know, if you take out the fact that he's Kobe Bryant and what happened to Kobe Bryant, you read this book and you're just sitting there going, what a fucking asshole. Why didn't she, Why did Shaquille O'Neal whoop his ass fucking every single day? Why didn't any of the players just beat the shit out of this guy? He was that type of an asshole. But the thing was, Kobe was smart. He was a prodigy. He was a basketball genius. And he had this iron will of determination to be the best player. He wanted to be the best player who ever lived. But he didn't know how to go about it in a mature, professional way. 
You know, his guard was always up. It was just, he was just an asshole. He was an immature asshole. And it was just amazing how he, in a short amount of time, changed in terms of the way he grew up and the person that he became. He found himself. And it's like when Kobe finally found himself, he unlocked this absolutely brilliant human being. And I'm saying brilliant human being as a person. This warm, giving, caring, just fantastic human being. So the 180 this guy did, it was remarkable. The talent was already there. He was already an exceptional human being with exceptional gifts. I'm not talking about basketball playing. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm just talking about how he just became an exceptional human being. Warmth, compassion, good father, all of those type of things. You know, being able just to be himself. It was like he was so busy trying to be somebody that he wasn't. He was trying to be he was trying to be hard. He was trying to be school, old school. He was trying to be street. He was trying to be Michael Jordan. He was trying to be all of these all of these things. And when he finally said, fuck all that, I just want to be me, and I want to be the best me I can be, the guy was just, I mean, he was, uh, he was legendary, almost. And he, I guess he needed to go through all of the things that he went through. Uh, the isolation from his teammates, some of it was their fault, a lot of it was his fault. The, the rape charge, everything with that, blaming, talking about going to the police and saying, well, you know, Shaq does this all the time, so I thought that, you know, if, uh, if uh, you know, I did this, that, you know, I would get away with it like Shaq would. I mean, all of the immature and just punk-as-ass shit that he did, he learned from that. And he turned that around to become the person that he was. And, I mean, God bless his wife and his children and everything like that, but... Kobe was a man. Kobe, in the end, turned out to be even a bigger, better, better man than even he could have dreamed of. And it had nothing to do with that. He, as, a, as a human being, as a total human being, bringing in everything, all the gifts that the Lord gave him. And he surpassed even Michael Jordan in terms of the type of man's man that he could be. It's amazing. It's remarkable. So when he died, maybe the Lord was just kind of like, you know what, man, I'm, you've kind of hit Zenith. You've kind of hit, you know, I'm, you're good. You're done here. Time for you to go home. But then again, why would he take it? I don't, I don't question the Lord. I don't question the Lord. But it was just like the, um, it was unbelievable because the outpouring of emotion and all this kind of stuff, if you would have said this would have been the case 20 years ago, you would have gotten laughed out of the gym or you would have been cursed at because very, 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 very few people liked Kobe Bryant back in the day. And Kobe didn't give a fuck. He was like, I don't give a fuck about people like me or not. I'm here to win championships. I'm not in the, I'm not in the friend-making business. I'm into the championship-winning business. And that goes for my teammates. That goes for my coaches. I don't give a fuck. The guy had a wedding and didn't invite any of his players when he married Vanessa. Didn't invite any of his teammates to the wedding. Neither his coaches. Back in the day, they didn't know where Kobe Bryant lived. They didn't know anything about the guy. Except that he was a uh, guarded, selfish, prima donna asshole. So again, the, the um, transformation that that guy made. Wow. Unbelievable. But 2020 was a year and a time for those passing. 
may they rest in peace. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was something else. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Who? Wendell Wallace? What? Wendell Wallace? How? Wendell Wallace! Okay. So glad that you could be with us. The last segment for 2020. Lord have mercy, please, Lord. Let's, let me just get through these final... How many more hours have we got left? Let me get through these final 10 hours, and I'll be good, and I'll be good. I'll be thankful, and I'll be grateful that you are going to allow me to continue to uh, do what I'm doing, if you would be so kind. So, yeah, man, um, 2020, as I mentioned before, um, it's basically now over, 2021. My thoughts about moving forward, I'm going to take it one day at a time. We say this all the time. We talk about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. Taking it one day at a time, that's going to be hard. Now, I can set up my goals, I can set up my dreams, I can set up my aspirations for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the road. There are things that I want to do. There are some things that I haven't achieved yet that I still want to do. There's some weaknesses about me personally that I still want to work on that's going to take me some time to get where I need to be. There's still some growth. There's a lot of growth personally that I need to do that's going to take me years before I feel comfortable. There's some insecurities that I have still that is going to take me years to overcome. And I want to uh, have time to be able to do that. I want to see when my time is done, whenever that is, but when uh, the Lord calls me home or my expiration date is over or my batteries wear out or whatever, I want to leave being the best person I could possibly be. And I also want to leave some type of mark, some type of impact, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, no matter how short, far it reaches, to somebody to where they can take uh, some of the things that I was as a human being and move them forward. Whenever I hear these testimonials or whenever I hear these folks talk about someone who had passed away, they talk about the legacy that they left. And I'm not just talking about in sports or something like that. I'm just talking about everyday human beings. You know, the person who's living down the street from me, who's right across the street from you, who's your next door neighbor, who you work with, who you uh, go to the gym with, who's in your workout class, who you, um, your waiter, your bartender, your pizza delivery guy, whoever, somebody, people out there, they have something in terms of, you know, when you leave this existence, what are you leaving? Who are you leaving it for? Who are you leaving it to? What type of impact do you have? And basically, when I leave, whether it be in 15 minutes or 15 centuries, I just want it 15 centuries, 15 years, I just want to be able to say, somebody say, hey, you know what? I listened to Wendell Wallace, or I was a friend of Wendell Wallace, or I got to know Wendell Wallace, and uh, yeah, you know, there's some shit that uh, he was talking about, there's some stuff that he was talking about, the way he conducted himself, some of the education that he was flowing out you know, from himself that uh, I'm going to uh, hold on to, I'm going to take, and I'm going to use, and I'm going to be influenced by. 
you know, that's that's what I want. I think that's what anybody wants in um, their lifetime. You know, to leave their mark, to leave their legacy. I can't, <coughs> I can't do it with my kids <coughs> because I don't have any kids. And at the rate that I'm going, I could live to be 565 years old and I wouldn't have any kids. Nor do I neither. I really don't want kids at this present time. <coughs> so I'm 51 years old. You don't want them down, Wendell. Uh, you know, shit. But, you know, but <coughs> damn, I'm all choked up just thinking about it. <coughs> but, but um, yeah, so I don't have any kids to pass along any of my whatever. And uh, I'm not married, so I don't have anything to pass along that way. So, you know, I got friends and family and all that type of stuff. But, you know, I just want to make sure moving forward that I try to uh, leave something behind for people to take in a positive way and to uh, move in a positive direction. To do my part every day to bring peace, harmony, unity, understanding to the society, to the space that I live in. Again, it might be a stupid reason. It might be a ridiculous reason. It might be a reason that scratches your head and goes, well, that's a fucking waste of time. But again, when I say wassalamu alaikum and shalom and konnichiwa and namaste and bonjour and kepasa and everything, it's just my way of saying hello to everybody. This podcast is global. And hopefully people listen to this podcast who speak those languages. So it's just my way of saying hello. It's just my way of showing you respect. That's that's all. It ain't a shtick. It ain't something to get more clicks. It's not anything to get um, trying to get me more subscribes or likes or reviews or anything like that. It's just, you know, when everything went down in 2020 and everything went down in terms of George Floyd and everything and I was up there speaking about what can we do and I was talking about have that conversation with somebody who doesn't look like you, who might not understand you, who's ignorant to the plight of who you are and what you go through every day and if they take five percent of what you say and they can grow from that then it's better than four it's better than three it's better than two it's better than one so you know for this podcast again i'm here to entertain i want it to be unique i don't have the uh backing i don't have the big platform i don't have the uh the millions upon millions of dollars to um to, to go ahead and to uh, get this out there and to uh, promote it and anything like that. So I'm just doing the best that I can to see what I can do. Lord knows if I was on one of the bigger platforms, if you put this on ESPN, if you put this on Barstool, if you put this on uh, iHeart, if you put this on anything in terms of these guys are going to really throw it out there, that uh, my message and my style and my meanings and my education and everything that I'm doing right now, the uniqueness of my personality and the way that I do what I'm doing right now, it would be getting a lot more run. It would be getting a lot more play. I would be, be, be influencing people a lot more. But, you know, there's two ways, there's two avenues, there's two opportunities to get there. And if one isn't open, I'm going to take the other one. Not going to give up. Plus, I love what I do, so this podcast is going to be around for a long, long time. I, I don't do this because I'm trying to get rich. I don't do this because of um, anything except that I just absolutely, positively love what I'm doing. It doesn't matter to me. I've been, there's just there's nothing that's going to curtail me from continuing to do this. So, for me, this is just my gift to you. If you want to gift, great. If you don't, great. If you like it, great. If you don't, great. It's my, my shit ain't for everybody. You know, hopefully it's for enough. So 2021, I want to continue to do what I'm doing 
with my podcast to bring my message, to try to help out those, to try to entertain those, to try to make people who are listening to my podcast um, their day a little bit better and, and get them to think a little bit and, and maybe get them to uh, elicit some type of emotion, positive emotion moving forward. So all I want to happen in the year 2021 is to remain alive, remain mentally and physically healthy, have my goddaughter be have this be the best year of her life. My beautiful, wonderful, fantastic, awesome goddaughter, Sydney Davis, who my favorite human being under the age of 51 years old. I want to get back in the classroom out here in Clark County, get back to uh, making the regular trips up to the high schools in Mesquite and Mawapa Valley so I can teach those kids who don't have the opportunity to see, to be able to uh, be around someone like me from my community. When you're speaking about those kids up there in those rural areas, as far as the only sites they see of black people might be from Fox News or the only thing they might learn from black people is, is, is the negative stuff that they hear on Fox News or anything like that. I want to be able to show them that, hey, let me tell you something, man. Black folks, there's more than, than, than black folks than rapping and playing basketball and baggy pants and cornrows and tattoos and all in the ghetto and their parents are in jail and the father's no longer with them. and All of the ignorant racist stereotypes that they're probably bombarded with on a regular basis because of the environment that they live in, they don't have the opportunity to learn anything more about uh, people from my community. I want to let them know that, believe me, there's a lot more people in my community like me, intelligent, articulate, strong, knowledgeable, educated, good-looking. I'm joking. But uh, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm joking about the good-looking part, even though I ain't too bad at my age. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in my community that look like me, that think like me, that are strong like me, that are educated like me, that are open and honest and and um, just looking to get along with everybody. You know, don't have my guards up, not looking to, you know, cook you and eat you if you come over and say what's up and anything like that. We're approachable, we're wonderful, fantastic, beautiful, awesome people. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to try to deal with those who are uh, might be ignorant of that. And for those with hate in their hearts and racism in their bones and are dedicated to things disruptive and hateful and violent and oppressive. I hope you get COVID and die a slow and painful death. Sports-wise, what I want for 2021, I want my Georgetown Hoyas at the end of December, 365 days from now. I want them to be in the potential, in the position where their potential, uh, potential team of making the NCAA tournament, finishing in the top five in the Big East. I want to see a starting lineup with Dante Harris, TJ Berger, Aminu Muhammad. Chet Holgren, yeah, Chet Holgren, we're still in the race for him, baby. Kudus Wahab, I want Jabari Sibley coming off the bench along with Ryan Batombo, Jordan Ridley, Kobe Clark. Hell, even give Timothy Eagle Hefe a few minutes, I don't give a damn. I want Coach Ewing, Patrick Ewing, to still be the coach of the team. I want to be able, this year in 2021, I want to be able to watch Anthony Joshua fight Tyson Fury. I want to see Bud Crawford fight Errol Spence. I want to see LeBron James go for his fifth NBA championship against Giannis Adenokupo with at least 60% of the fans in the arena. I want to see Joshua and Fury fight with at least 80% in Wembley Stadium. I want to see Bud Crawford fight Errol Spence with at least 50% at Jerry World. Somehow, someway, I want Daniel Snyder to have to sell the team, the Washington football team, so we can go ahead and get a real competent owner in there so my team can finally do some things. I want to watch Roger Federer make one more run in a major, hopefully Wimbledon before he retires, 
Roger Federer being my favorite all-time athlete, at least in the last 15, 20 years. I want to see Eric Bieniemy in at least five. No, I'll, I'll, no, five. Good Lord. I want to see Eric Bieniemy in at least two. I'll go with two. I'll be generous. I'll be conservative in this point. Eric Bieniemy and at least two other black coaches get head coaching jobs in the NFL. And I don't want them to be with the Detroit Lions because I want to have these guys actually get a shot of having some success. And uh, basically for me personally, I also want to find a female like, uh, I want to find a female like Felisa Hale. Special dedication to one of my all-time favorite females and someone who has made an impact on my life. I'm going to have the same impact on somebody 30 years later, 30 years, years later that Felicia Ham had on me. P-H-E-L-I-S-A. If it was up to me, I would name my child after her. Of course, the mother of my child would have like final say on the name of the child. I mean, after all, she is carrying it. She is uh, doing all the heavy lifting. So, yeah, I can't be like, yeah, thanks for uh, producing my child. Now, I'm going to be in charge of naming it shit. I don't think so, buddy. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll always remember her, Felisa Ham. I'll always remember her, keep her in my heart, regardless of what happens in that department. I mean, I could fall in love with someone, my soulmate tomorrow. But Felisa will always find, will always be in my heart. I'll always love her. My love for her will always be there. Always. I met her in San Francisco back when I was 93, something like that. She was beautiful. She was wonderful. She was fabulous. She was the first female I've ever fallen in love with. And I did it. I knew that I fell in love with her because it wasn't a situation where, you know, I saw her and physically I was attracted to her. And, oh, my goodness, I want to sleep with you. And this, that, and all, and that. No, 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 no. I fell in love with Felisa Ham because of the person who she was. She was attractive. But to me, it was like, eh, yeah, whatever. But as I got to know her better, I fell in love with her in that attractive level rose exponentially because of the person that she was. Man, just quick note, just a quick story about her, and then I'm going to get out of here. The nicest thing that a female has ever done for me. I was at El Torito. I was a waiter. I was terrible. I was horrible. And I had known Felisa just in a high-buy situation. No big deal, this, that, and the other. So one night, I went there, and I tried to make... Much, enough money so I could go ahead and pay my rent and pay my bills. At the time, me and my me and my boy Chris Puerto Rican Ortiz was living together. He was working in El Torito. I was working in El Torito. He had worked the afternoon shift. I was working the evening shift. Shift. So I needed to make X amount of money because I owed him the rent money tomorrow. So I had a plan. I had a goal to make X amount of dollars, and I was so bad as a waiter. I was so terrible. The busters hated me. The expediters hated me. I was terrible. There was I, How those people did not fire me after a week is beyond me. I was so bad. I was messing up orders. The food was cold. I was taking it to the wrong table. It was terrible. The cooks hated me because I was putting in the orders wrong. The expediters hated me because I wouldn't get my food because I was so busy putting out so many other fires of the tables that I fucked up on that the food was sitting there getting cold. It was just terrible. It was a nightmare of an experience. Learning experience, but I'll never, ever say anything bad about a uh, server as long as I live. Unless they have to be really, really bad. Because nothing, I can't imagine anybody being as worse of a server than me. So, I was uh, trying to make 
the money to pay my rent and everything. I was so bad. Not only did I not make my goal, I had to take money out of my own pocket to pay the buster and the expediter because I was stiffed, correctly so, I was stiffed on so many tables because of the food and because of the service. That was just terrible. So not only did I not make my quota, I actually lost money because I was so bad, I actually paid the expediter and the busser out of my own pocket because I didn't make enough tip money. So I'm sitting there and not on the verge of tears, but I was just despondent upon, upon belief. And Felicia was like, hey, wonder what's going on, man? How you doing? I was like, uh, <laughs> not good. Not good at all. So... She was like, well, what's happening, man? What's going on? So, you know, we talked and we talked and we talked. I just, you know, I, you know, let it all hang out. You know, I, I can't believe this. I, I suck. I'm terrible. I'm a horrible human being. I'm a loser. I'm just pathetic. And I can't believe it. And why am I even, this, that, and the other. Very patient. Felicia, very patient. This, that, and the other. And she was like, all right, you know, just, you know, you got to you know, hang in there, man. This, that, and the other. So she was like, so are you going to be... How are you going to be getting home tonight? And I was like, well, I mean, at the time I didn't have a car, so I took the bus to the Bart, to the bus to El Torito. Luckily, the bar, the, the the my house to the Bart was a couple of miles. The Bart to El Torito was a couple of miles. So I was like, well, I don't have enough money to be uh, catching the bus to the Bart to the bus back home. So you know, it might be 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Luckily, the BART runs all night or runs late. So I'm just going to walk to the BART station, catch the BART, and then walk home because I need to save the uh, bus money that I uh, I was going to plan on. She was like, I'll take you home. I know where Chris lives. I'll take you home. I was like, well, all right. Um, I appreciate it. Thanks. So we're in the car, and she's like, you know, are you hungry? You need something to eat? I was like, eh, you know, you want to stop by Jack in the Box so I can get a $1.29 jumbo jack because that's about basically all I can afford right now. She goes, no, I'll, I'll take you somewhere to eat. So she took me somewhere to eat. She let me, I was like, you know, you can take me somewhere to eat. That's fine, but I don't have the money. To, no, don't worry about the money. I'll pay for it, this, that, and the other. Awesome. This woman doesn't know who I am. Man, this is great. So, you know, we're sitting there, and I'm just, you know, you know, doing the Dr. Phil routine in terms of, you know, back when I was, I was on the couch, you know, and I was like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm this, that, and the other, and this, that, and the other. I'm wallowing, and I'm feeling sorry for myself, and woe is me, woe is me. And she was just like, hey, man, you got to keep your head up. You got to be strong. You got to keep going. So she dropped me off, and I was like, hey, Felisa, I really do appreciate this, man. I, I, you know, I really do. She said, don't worry about it. Look, you'll be fine. You'll be great. You'll be wonderful. I was like, you know, I really, I really don't. Just everything you've done, you know, letting me just, yep, 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 and I really do appreciate that. She goes, don't worry about it, man. I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. All right. So now come in the next day, and I'm not feeling good at all. <laughs> my my uh, confidence level is pretty low. Pretty low. Because I remember what happened last week. I remember what happened yesterday and the day before and the day before and the other time that I was uh, wagering. And I was just like, this is going to be another nightmare. This is going to be another day where I'm going to fuck up and I'm going to be an idiot and people are going to be laughing at me and they're going to be cursing me out in Spanish and all this kind of stuff and... Fuck it, here we go. And, you know, again, I saw Felisa, who was working the same, same shift I was, and I went up to her and I said, hey, again, you know, I uh, appreciate what you did. I really do. And, uh, you know, I, for last night, appreciate it. She goes, you know what? I was thinking about you last night, and I wanted to give you this. So she gave me a, a note, and it was like an inspirational thing. I was like, well, did you? No, I've got, I have a book at home where I read and I was reading a passage and I was thinking about you and I said I want you to have this I want you to wrote it so I wrote it down and I want you to have it I was like Jesus Christ I, I was like that's you know that's I love you I just you know I mean it just started you don't know me 
I mean, there's no way in a million years I would do this for anybody. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't have done it back then. I probably wouldn't even do it now. I wouldn't have taken anybody home. I definitely wouldn't buy them anything to eat. And I definitely wouldn't take the time after I got off of work when the turnaround for me to go back to work was less than 12 hours to sit there and read an inspirational book to find a passage to give to this guy. I wouldn't do that now. And I'm trying to be a better human being. I wouldn't do that for anybody outside of my, my uh, goddaughter. And, well, my mom doesn't need it. But outside of my goddaughter, I wouldn't do that for anybody uh, walking this planet. So for her to do that for me and... The fact that she barely knew me, to take that amount of time, wow, man, that no one has ever done that for me since. I mean, there's been females who've done a lot of, a lot of good things for me, who've done a lot of things that have given me joy. <laughs> but I mean, never, no one has ever like cared for me like that, who knew me so little. So, man, in 2021, if I could find me a Felisa Ham like that, man, I'd be quite sure right now. That was a long time ago. We parted ways. We didn't date or anything like that. But, I mean, she just became my everything in terms of uh, just, I just wanted to be around her all the time. I mean, it's just, the love for her just grew. So, my love for her now is I'm quite sure she's probably still in the Bay Area or she might have gone back to Washington. But I'm quite sure she's been married for, you know, 25, 30, or 25 years. And she has herself, you know, three, four kids. And she's got a good job. And she's living a good life. And you know, day-to-day stuff, and she's happy and everything, so I love the fact that uh, she's living a life like that, and that's what I'm going to be thinking, so, um, yeah, man, so, that's what I'm looking for in 2021, if I can find me a female, if I can find me that needle in that haystack, I'm not letting go of that again, you gotta remember, this is 1992 when I left, I left, I left the Bay Area to go back home in 1994, so, I mean, you know, if we met today, you know, we would be on Facebook or I would have her email address or her texts. I'd be able to text her or some shit like that. But I wrote her a few letters when I got back home. But, you know, I was trying to be Mr. Macho and, you know, time for me to move on. You know, I'm moving on. You know how like they do in the movies where, you know, let's just kiss and say goodbye by the spinners and then they walk out the, you know, they walk away and the credits roll while the sad music is playing and she's like, I love you. And you're walking away with tears in your eyes and the credits roll. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what I thought that uh, it would be like when I left. You know, I'm going to be a man about this. I'm going to be, you know, Mr. Stud, this, that, and the other. I love you, but I'm looking to move on. So let's just kiss and say goodbye and all this type of thing. And I'm going to walk away. And then three months later, I was like, what the fuck did I just do? My love for her is still strong. You fucking idiot. By that time, you know, all was lost. But uh, if I could find a female like that, <sighs> that would be great. So that's the end of this podcast, man. At the end of this podcast. So everybody be safe, be strong, love each other, unity, harmony, all of that good stuff. 2020 is now over! Music.